Hi, my name's Stephen King. And I'm Mick Garris, and I'm the director of The Stand. I had the idea for The Stand kicking around in my mind, I guess, from about 1975, when my wife and I had moved out to Colorado. At that time, I had an idea for a novel about a haunted hotel called The Shining, which I did write. And for a long time during that period, I'd been uh, kind of thinking about the Patty Hearst case. Patty Hearst, of course, had been kidnapped by a radical group called the SLA. Uh, and there was a fellow named Sing Q, who was the head honcho. And the group kind of brainwashed her and turned her around and made her crazy, made her part of the group. And uh, they all picked up guns and uh, started robbing banks, and later a lot of them were killed in a shootout. And I felt that I wanted to write a story about that, and in particular about the time in which she was sort of overtaken by some kind of evil impulse. While I was thinking about that, um, living out there in Colorado, there was a, a Bible-thumping station on uh, the, the radio outside of uh, Arvada. And one day, when I was thinking about Patty Hearst and Sinkyu and the SLA and uh, all of that business, I, I happened to tune to this Bible station and heard this minister ranting about how once in every generation the plague shall fall among them. Somehow those two things got together in my mind. And uh, then I saw a movie with George C. Scott called Rage. And this was a film that was based on something that actually happened in Utah. Um, there was a spill of chemical biological canisters. Some of the canisters ruptured and a bunch of sheep were killed by the gas. And someone said if the wind had been blowing the other way, uh, Salt Lake City was just down there and everybody might have been killed. So at this point, I'm finishing up The Shining, and I've got these three ideas kind of rolling around in my head. One is the way in which uh, strong evil can overcome weak good. One was an idea about how uh, once in every generation the plague shall fall among them. And the third thing was this thing about the canisters and the accidental spill. And uh, then I started to think about a guy named Charles Campion. Um, I thought to myself, what if you had a guy on the gate during the spill of some particularly virulent material? Suppose that uh, he were to get a lungful of this stuff and carry it off the base with him, and the plague started to spread. And really, the basic idea for the story was as simple as that. I uh, thought, suppose he gets out, and uh, this thing is extremely virulent, and uh, let's say, a 99% communicability. Now, there has to be somebody left, or there isn't any real story, right? You can't just have a deserted United States. And I really started with no more than that, and with uh, this song kind of dinning in my ear, too, at the same time. There's a song by Blue Oyster Cult called Don't Fear the Reaper, and uh, it's an extremely creepy song, and uh, it's a song about embracing death over life, and... Uh, it's morbid, and uh, it rocks, it's wonderful, and I thought, I can make this 
song, the feeling of this song, a kind of basic sub-theme to my story, if I can sort of hear it in the back of my mind all the time that I'm working. And in particular, uh, I saw it when I sat down to write the miniseries as uh, something that would be fantastic if we could actually have that music playing underneath this long track shot of all these dead people in the Project Blue facility. Uh, Mick Garris was the director of The Stand, and uh, I talked to him about it, and I said, what do you think, can we get it? And he said, uh, piece of cake, <laughs> which is what Mick always says when you ask him anything, which is one of the things that makes him so, uh, uh, so fun to work with. Uh, we're looking at a lady who is a, a serious bone of contention with uh, ABC standards and practices. On ABC TV, no one can die with their eyes open. It's like a, a law, and we had to have like a special dispensation from the Pope or something like that to uh, get that guy, that, that lady there. And uh, so there you go, man. And everything turned out the way that Mick said that it would. I'd worked with uh, Steve King before on a feature film called Sleepwalkers. Uh, everything I had directed prior to The Stand was of a much more modest scale than this. Uh, one day my agents delivered the script to my door and I thought it was a new doorstop. It was 460 pages long and uh, rather daunting and enormous in scope. There was something like 95 scripted locations. Uh, we ended up shooting it in six different states. Um, it was enormous and nothing like anything I'd ever done before. But um, having had the confidence of Steve King and me and this great script uh, and an aggressive group of people just wanting to make uh, a movie out of their favorite book, it was <laughs> at the very least daunting but mostly exciting. People still come up to me uh, these five years later and uh, tell me how, how much they like that song and how, uh, how everything fit together so nicely, it's memorable sequence. This uh, crow is actually played by a raven. The ravens were great actors. I mean, much more reliable than you would ever guess. You know, I came to my political consciousness, such as it is, in the 60s, in the uh, period of the whole world's watching, the Chicago Convention, and uh, police uh, swinging billy clubs, and uh, Richard Nixon saying, don't worry, we have a plan, everything's going to be all right. I also come from, from Maine, and the two things uh, combine in me to give me this kind of... Uh, trust in common people, uh, like the kind of guys who would maybe hang around a gas station in Arnett, Texas, and a real distrust of anybody whatsoever in authority. And a lot of what we're looking at here are people who are becoming infected, a government that's becoming aware uh, that their dirty little secret is out there and that it's killing people, and their first concern is not stopping the plague or uh, uh, saving the people who've been infected by the plague, but rather covering the whole thing up. My idea about the plague was that it would operate sort of like a chain letter, 
That is to say, Charles Campion would give it to his wife and baby. And here are these fellows in this gas station, and every one of them will soon be dead. Some of them will live a little bit longer than others. But until they are quarantined and put away, they will continue to infect people at an exponential rate. So that it seemed to me that the crucial element in the early part of the story was that the government would try to cover this up um, rather than to put out a, a public release saying, here's a problem that we all have to face together uh, for fear of finger pointing and people losing their jobs and that sort of thing. Uh, in other words, business as usual, bureaucratic log rolling. And I think one of the reasons that the book and the miniseries was a success, and as far as the book goes, it's the one that I still hear about, 1979, as, as I sit here and looking at, at this, uh, I wrote this book and published it about 22 years ago. And um, it's still the one where I go out and speak in, in uh, public and people say, uh, when are you going to write another book like The Stand? And my shoulders kind of go down because I say to myself, oh, God, that's, that's pretty old. And uh, there was a different guy that wrote that. But obviously, it struck a chord with a lot of people who looked at it. And I think that a lot of people do believe that uh, in the... In the bureaucracy, the, uh, the government is a lot more concerned with uh, saving their own asses than they are with uh, protecting the people that they've been elected to protect. And so there's a, this a sort of a Steinbeck thing going on here. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the uh, suits or are you going to trust the common people who come out to rescue a stranger in the pouring rain? And uh, my feeling was to stick with the common people. Um, they're the people that I know and they're the people that I love. And uh, in terms of the story, I love in any kind of a disaster epic, I love these opening minutes, I think, more than anything else. I like the idea of watching a situation start to tremble and go out of control. People don't know exactly what's happening and they don't know exactly how to behave. And I think that a lot of times, that's our clearest index into human nature, is how people behave when they're facing a crisis that they don't really understand. Uh, are they going to uh, behave according to, to the, the best in them, or are they going to slip and go toward the part that's more cowardly and uh, more expedient? And my feeling about people like... Uh, Stu Redman and uh, Hap and all these, these other guys, is that they tend to be good people rather than bad people. Um, we're seeing the, the advent of the bad people here, the people who are going to cover up. And uh, we had a chance here to work with Ed Harris, who ordinarily wouldn't do TV. Ed is a, a movie star. He's an extremely talented actor. And uh, I've had a relationship with him that goes back to the time when I wrote The Stand. Uh, George Romero and I made a film called Creep Show, and uh, Ed Harris had worked with George in a, in a previous film. It was his first starring role. That was a uh, motorcycle guys uh, become um, Knights of the Round Table. The movie was called Night Riders, and Ed played the head biker 
and he and George formed a good relationship, and I worked a little bit on that picture as an actor. And uh, so later, years later, after he had done a part in Creepshow, um, Mick and I asked him if he would do uh, uh, the general in um, the stand. And Ed said he would. And the way that actors generally do this is they appear uncredited. Um, there's another uh, interesting cameo appearance by an uncredited actor a little bit later on in the stand. What I remember about Ed is how shocked we all were when he showed up uh, bald-headed. But of course, he never had too much on top anyway, and finally he decided <laughs> to get ahead of the curl a little bit and uh, just shave it all off. And this is a look that people have gotten used to, but it made its, its debut in the stand. He did a terrific job, and a lot of the actors did. You know, I think that one of the key elements in the stand was finding somebody who could really spearhead that, that uh, feeling that I talked about before of the common man. Um, I wanted somebody, if possible, that would have the, uh, the stature of, of uh, Henry Fonda in The Grapes of Wrath. And I think we were very lucky to get Gary Sinise to play the lead. Uh, he turned in a performance to Stu Redman that's my favorite in the, in the work that I've written. You're dead, sir. Contact with townspeople was minimal. That doesn't matter. We gotta shut that town down, lock it up, dig a moat around it. That operation's already on the launching pad, sir. What kind of cover did you come up with? Anthrax. New strain. <laughs> yeah, it's a new one, all right. It's real new. It's very good at its job, too. Too good. Well, it's bad, General, but it could be worse. <laughs> How's that? What's the name of this town? Arnett. Arnett, Texas. One of the nice things about working from book to film is that you get to add things that are strictly visual. And I love the chance to do the flu buddy ad here and to use it a little bit through the course of the... Uh, the, uh, the story. Brand names have always been a favorite thing of mine, as anybody who's read my work knows, and uh, it was great to have a chance to put that in, to have a little fictional uh, product. Uh, we had a character uh, in the book, an actual character named Joe Bob, and we thought, wouldn't it be great to have Joe Bob Briggs, the film critic who does drive-in theater on uh, the Turner Network, do the part of, of Joe Bob in The Stand. And we were delighted to find that uh, not only would he do it, but that he could do it. Um, Joe Bob Briggs is a pretty good actor. He's taken some classes, and he's done some work in other films. And, of course, he's a Texas boy, so you don't have to worry about the Texas accent with him. I had one guy come up and say, where did you get that Hollywood patrolman who played Joe Bob? What a phony Texas accent that was. And I said, where do you come from? And he said, Michigan. And I said, well, that's why. You don't know your ass from your elbow. Uh, Joe Bob is uh, an actual Texas boy whose real name is John Bloom. He was raised, <laughs> raised in Dallas, born raised in Dallas, Texas. So he's totally authentic. Take care of that old timer. Them summer calls are the worst. Huh. It was great to be able to get uh, John 
to do this part in here. And we wanted to fill it with some faces, uh, uh, some people that we really had a good time with. Um, and unfortunately, we ended up, ended up cutting out one of uh, Joe Bob's favorite scenes. We spent three hours making him up uh, for his death scene and then uh, basically just didn't have time in the final show. Um, although a lot of people like to add footage for director's cuts on DVD and Laserdisc and the like, um, the broadcast version of the show really is the director's cut. Um, any more added to it would be, I think, a little padded and uncomfortable. We shot most of the show in, uh, in Utah. The shoot was about five months of production. Uh, we shot for uh, four of those months in and around Salt Lake City. Uh, we shot for a couple of weeks in in Las Vegas, a week in Pittsburgh, a couple days in New York, uh, shot in uh, Ogunquit, Maine. We shot in California for a couple days. This is Utah. Be so grouchy about it, Cynthia. In a 16, over now. That's interesting. My background uh, as a youth was uh, participating in anti-war movements and all of that. And it was a great opportunity to tell a story uh, where I could be a patriot again, where we could talk about an America starting over without the politics, with altruism at its core. And that's one of the things I love so much about the book and the opportunity to make this movie, um, was to do America starting over, true America and to run over basketballs occasionally. Our line producer, Peter McIntosh, did some of the second unit work, which included a lot of the uh, moving of the troops and the like here uh, in the background. Second unit uh, refers to shots that are done without the primary cast uh, in them. Usually they're action shots or bits and pieces that help cut together. The sort of demonic personification of Randall Flagg in the form of the uh, crow is a visual uh, symbol that constantly repeats and again was uh, performed by very good acting ravens. In fact, they should have credits, ravens as crows. Um, Gary Sinise was an actor uh, who would not normally have been a lead in a, an American network television miniseries. At the time we made this, he was not at all well-known. Uh, he had directed a couple of feature films, was well-known for his work with the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago on stage, um, had been acting, uh, had directed a couple of TV shows, but um, the networks are normally star fuckers. And uh, they really were insisting on movie star names, television star names. A lot of people Steve and I weren't enthusiastic about. Um, the way we hired Gary was interesting. An agent um, from my agency and Steve's agency actually sent me the money to go see uh, one of his actors in a movie. And it turned out to be um, the... Uh, Gary Sinise's movie, the John Steinbeck uh, book that he adapted of, of Mice and Men. 
And he starred in it as well as directed it. And he knocked me out. I thought, man, if we could only get him to play Stu Redman. And uh, ABC was actually open enough to it that they uh, endorsed hiring him to their credit. And we went to Gary. I never thought he would say yes. And he was really enthusiastic about it. And I just think he did a great job. It was so good to be able to get him and to play the everyman who's, who's the center of this story, the guy we all have to be with, the, the Gary Cooper, Henry Fonda character. Well, our flying time today will be three hours and 40 minutes, and Uncle Sam is buying all the drinks. What the hell's wrong with us? Is it cholera? Absolutely not. You'll be getting all the details. When? Shortly. It was interesting working on the uh, budget we had. Although it was um, a sizable budget for a television production, it was not a huge budget for an eight-hour miniseries. Uh, you hear helicopters taking off. You don't see them. Uh, a lot of the things we tried to do to um, make it feel bigger uh, than it actually cost. Um, one of the things we did, we shot the show in 16 millimeter rather than the normal 35 millimeter. And um, we did everything we could do to hide that fact. I wouldn't use any filtration or uh, smoke in, in shots that would diminish the, uh, the sharpness of the image. Um, we tried to do as much movement as possible. Just as the disease itself creeps along, we wanted the camera to creep and move without just being masturbatory in its movement, but to really try to move everything along uh, to tell this, the drama of the story as eloquently as possible. I think one of the most exciting things for Steve was to write the lyrics for Baby Dig Your, Can You Dig Your Man and have Al Cooper write the music. Al Cooper was a pretty major uh, music figure as a performer uh, in the 60s and 70s and as a producer on up through the years. Um, and he's a friend of Steve's, and they collaborated on the uh, Larry Underwood classic you're listening to right now, Baby Can You Dig Your Man. Now this says Queens, New York, but uh, in actuality, it is Pittsburgh. And more movie magic, this Pittsburgh exterior cuts to a Salt Lake City interior of the house. Adam Stork, who played Larry Underwood, I think did a really great job, and he was an actor I was not familiar with. Originally, the network and the agents were pushing for Rob Lowe to play this part, and I just thought it would be interesting to bring Rob in to, uh, to play something that you're not expecting him to play. The, the deaf mute of Nick Andros is so far removed from what we're used to seeing him play that I thought he'd be great doing that. And then I found out The Stand was his favorite book of all time, and he was such a great guy to work with, great sense of humor and everything. It was really, I think both these roles were cast just right. <laughs> Went inside Larry before the neighbors get an eyeful. So you know the record cracked the top 50. Now we're in 
inside in Salt Lake City. You heard it, right? Of course I have. You sound black. Huh. That brown sound sure do get around. Just again, we're trying to indicate a little bit of the uh, deterioration of things going around, starting in a subtle way. Uh, just a little bit of desolation on the streets. So I'm in L.A., and all of a sudden everyone's my friend. The and color is a, a little bit muted here. Just trying to bring everything down just a little bit, play it quiet. Just a little impending doom underneath. Pains me some, but I got my pills. And the people are the important thing in this, in this scene. What kind of trouble are you in, Larry? I think we were really lucky to find uh, Mary Gregory. She was a local Salt Lake City actress uh, and uh, just brings so much great humanity and pain and disappointment over her her son on the, the eve of his success as a rock star. I just think there's such a great sensitivity she brought to it that uh, when her decay uh, happens later on in the show, it's really that much more difficult to take. the leg breakers any different out there on the West Coast than they are here? Do they give you a Perrier and a Valium before they start hurting you? You're just like your father. No, I am not just like Pop. Tell yourself pissed off. Well, I am pissed off, Ma. Good. It's good to know that there's still a real person in there someplace. We did everything we could to honestly convey the book to, uh, to the miniseries. Um, and sometimes there were battles involved, but uh, I would say we uh, managed to stretch the envelope a little bit as far as what standards and practices would normally allow. Um, pissed off is a, a term that was not often used in uh, network television in 1994. With a bullet. Bam! The album hasn't hit the Hot 100 yet, but it will. We had pages and pages of standards and practices notes that were... Uh, they ranged from ridiculous to the expected. Um, we had far fewer in The Shining because of the success of The Stand with the network. Rich. Huh? Rich. The bed's still in your old room. And the music that is creeping in at this point, Snuffy Walden was the composer and also the guitarist. Snuffy started as a... Um, session guitarist and Steve King was a big fan of his music particularly from I'll Fly Away and I had never heard any of his music before and none of his credits indicated that he had had any experience in building suspense and tension and and the outright horror that we would go to at times in this film so I was a little hesitant about it but Steve was fairly adamant and he was going after what he referred to as Blue Jeans music uh, for the score. And uh, I'm glad to have been convinced by Steve because Snuffy did a really great job. I think that uh, the Stovington facility where Stu is kept and some of his friends from the uh, gas station is one of my big nightmares. People say, how do you get your ideas for all the scary things that you write? And my response is that I write about the things that frighten me. 
And uh, I'm frightened of being sick, but not so much as I am the idea of being sick and falling into the hands of people who have no sympathy, uh, no sense of real caring. Um, the people who are overseeing the deaths of these first plague victims are like, uh, more like scientists watching rats die in a maze than they are um, doctors trying to care for real human beings. Uh, it's so damn quick, he says. We're totally cold about it. And uh, this is the bureaucracy at its worst. This is, this is the sort of nightmare of the bureaucracy that we all have down deep in our, our hearts. And if anything, they're angry with Stu Redman because he's fine and they can't figure out why he's fine. Uh, there's a sense here that these men in the white coats, who to me look hilariously like uh, a TV actors in, in an ad for Excedrin or Bufferin or one of these things that offers fast, fast, fast relief. I get the feeling that they would be delighted if Stu would actually croak. It would help them to balance their books and keep things in, in line. Um, and when you think about it, there's no reason for them to be doing what they're doing, but it's the only process that they know. When I wrote the book, and I was thinking about the way that a plague spreads, there's a sort of uh, inverted pyramid shape to a really virulent plague, where you have uh, Agent Zero, and then you see this sort of spreading out. Uh, Agent Zero infects one guy and another guy, so then there are two above him, and then three above those two, and then four, but of course it goes much faster. And I thought, when I do my uh, book, when I do my story, what I'd like to do is to start with Agent Zero, who is Charles Campion, and then go out to the people at the gas station, and then start to spread across uh, various parts of the country, because I wanted to tell a really American story, if I could. So I went from Stu in Texas to uh, Fran Goldsmith and Harold Lauder in Maine, which is an area that, that I know, and I felt very comfortable writing about it. Uh, a gun quit is a very artsy, craftsy, uh, theater-conscious, uh, sort of a pretentious little beach town. And I feel like I can say that because we tried to film part of Creepshow there, and they wouldn't let us on the beach. So you can take whatever I say with a grain of salt. I might have a little bit of that old chip left on my shoulder. But America is such a big country. And I thought to myself, I really can create a kind of Grapes of Wrath feeling here if I show these people in various places and see them drawing together. And uh, for me, I think one of the basic requirements of fiction is that you be able to not just like, but love all your characters. And uh, certainly Harold Lauder with his, with his pimples and his glasses and uh, his literary pretensions is kind of a hard character to love. But in order for me to find, uh, you know, a place where I can connect to him, <laughs> he's very good. <laughs> Corky Nemec is very good in that part. All I have to do is to go back to the way that I was in high school in the first couple of years of college to remember uh, what it's like to, to, uh, to be that person. 
And uh, with Franny, I guess that if there's anybody in the story that I could fall in love with myself, it would probably be Franny. But I love her relationship with her father, and I love the chance to go out of the Plague Center to small-town America and watch this thing really start to take hold. By the way, the poem that uh, Harold publishes is the first poem that I ever published. I simply took it uh, as it existed in uh, a literary magazine, which wasn't called Everleaf. It was actually called Moth, but it was very similar to that. So uh, you just do the same thing in, in a novel or uh, an adaptation that you do in real life, which is to drag the stuff that you know and fictionalize it. How are you? doing? Well, I'm fine. One of the biggest challenges of the stand, of course, was to convey the expansiveness of the, uh, the world that the plague eventually infects and to set up the beauty of it. And this was one of the first opportunities here, this scene, to actually show the beauty of the world that uh, could be destroyed by this disease. Um, the whole point of being on location, to me, is showing the location. Uh, budget dictated going to the locations rather than building sets for all of these things, but this is the sort of show that should be shot on location. Uh, this is, again, part of Utah, but I think it, uh, it stood in quite well for Ogunquit. Um, and the whole philosophy was to see as much of the world as we could present in as visually uh, appealing a way as possible. This was one of the few sets that we did build, and this was on a soundstage uh, in Utah that was built by the Osmonds when they had uh, the Donnie and Marie show going. They no longer own this. It's about uh, 10 miles from the Sundance uh, resort built by Robert Redford, so it's a real, real showbiz part of Utah. I'm sick of it! Mr. Redmond, if... Hey! I think you'd better get in there, don't you? Try to use the glass separating people as an image that recurs a lot, sometimes in reflections, sometimes seeing through, um, just to kind of multiply the, the imagery of the faces, the, the duplicity of the faces. Shot an awful lot with wide lenses to also convey the expanse, uh, or in this case, um, the wide high-angle lens just to make it feel sort of like a zoo cage. The man with the little clipboard and the armed escort. No, 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 we don't shake hands here, just precaution. Hmm. A precaution, uh-huh. Patty Greer says you've given her quite a bit of trouble. She's quite upset. Well, that makes two of us. Being hijacked by a bunch of government sons of bitches in spacesuits does that to me every time. So if you don't want to see how quick I can rip a hole in that thing before you can get out of here, you better give me a little information. You tell me why I'm not sick. Mr. Redmond, I, I hardly think... Talk to me, damn it! I'm sorry, but you... <gasps> Mr. Redmond, be reasonable. Just get out of here, you little weasel. You send me someone who give me some answers. I don't think you quite appreciate your position, Mr. Redmond. You're wrong about that. I do. Go on, get out.
I like counterpointing the claustrophobia of that room, that jail cell with the wide open night. Bright room, dark night. And here's our introduction to Mr. Rob Lowe. I rem remember that this was, uh, although it's the first time you see me, as luck would have it, I believe it's one of the last things that we shot after five months of shooting this. And um, I'm signing the lyrics to Yesterday uh, as a sort of gift to people who are hard of hearing out there. I thought it was a nice introduction to the character. See, your hat is on when it's the stuntman, and it's off when it's you. I never even <laughs> noticed that. Yeah. What was interesting is that the stuntman didn't take hits as well as you did. The fist <laughs> would swing to the left, and his face would turn to the right. Well, you know, it's all that getting beaten up in high school. I never thought it would come in handy, but uh, apparently it's all paid off here. This was a pretty scary scene. I mean, our stunt guy had devised a rig that allows you to take a kick to the crotch yes. without getting hurt. But yeah. you still don't trust it. No, I, I didn't even want to test it. I figured <laughs> let's do it once and we'll hope for the best. This was actually the scariest thing I did in the movie, this shot right here. It's, Which, a, it's actually a reverse shot. The, the, the tire starts at my head and, and goes in reverse, and we reversed the film. But it still was really scary for, to me for some reason. One of my favorite things was shooting the dreams because they didn't have to be so literal. They were something that you could really just entirely hint at, at feeling rather than, than reality. And uh, I was telling uh, a little about the cornfield before, you know, we were so limited on this soundstage, uh, we could not find any corn anywhere to shoot in that was practical to the movie. And we ordered tons of corn from Florida and it all came rotted. And so <laughs> this is all phony corn here. And, uh, and I remember this is actually now my first day of shooting. And I actually didn't talk for the first two days I was in Salt Lake City. So when I'm talking there, that is the first time I've spoken in about 48 hours. And it's amazing how frustrating it is to go through even two days without being able to talk. Incredibly frustrating. Remember we had our note session and I was writing on a chalkboard? Yep. When yep. I arrived that first day. Getting think, used to that. I think Mick thought I was nuts. <laughs> no, I thought he was an actor serious about his craft. <laughs> and the makeup was done here by Steve Johnson's XFX. Bill, Bill Corso did Ruby's makeup. Uh, did he do yours as well? Yeah, he did as well. And, and I, to this day, have, not, have no idea what Ruby D actually looks like. I only saw her in the full makeup. If I ran into her in the street... I don't think I'd, I'd know her. I just know her as, as this, this older, older woman. That was an experience I had, too, for five months. I was seeing her every day in this makeup, and one day I saw her out of the makeup, and she's this beautiful woman who looks 20 years younger than she really is, which is half of the age she's playing here at 108. And uh, it just, it was a shock. I couldn't realize it was the same woman. I think she actually, well, she'll probably tell you, I think she actually took to sleeping in the makeup. Yeah. It got to be such a time-consuming thing, taking it off and on. You know, this is one of the few scenes in the movie where I actually have lines. And the irony is I found myself consulting the script more d doing this part than I probably have in any other movie I've ever done. Is that right? I had so many notes. And no words. No words at all, but I was looking at the script all the time.
Right. In this reaction shot, I remember I had three paragraphs of notes of what, of what I wanted to work with with this reaction shot. A funny thing that people have reacted to in, in this transition here is the owl sound off camera that you react to. People think that you're reacting to a sound when you're deaf. But well, in fact, we're bridging the scene from one end to the next. Well, it's funny, you know, when I signed on to do this part, we talked, I was working with the great acting teacher, Roy London, and I had told him I thought I'd get a, a device that would block my hearing and, and I would uh, do a lot of sort of method stuff. And he and I came to the conclusion that we would take a totally different path and we would follow uh, what one of my favorite actors, John Malkovich, did in Places in the Heart where he played a blind man. They asked him, did you blindfold yourself and, and, and go through your life like that for any number of days? And he just sort of shook his head and laughed and said, no, I... I merely looked into the places in my own life where I am blind. Oh. And if acting is the lack of artifice and trying to be truthful by playing deaf, and I am a hearing actor, that's one more untruth to play. So what I played in this movie and never told anyone was that I could actually hear and that I had to find my own personal subconscious reasons as to why I chose to go through my life like this. I'm also this ruins the whole show for me. <laughs> that's why you never tell your director. <laughs> that's right. But that's, I, and I got that from John Malkovich in Places in the Heart. It was a brilliant blind performance. Right? Yeah, just, great. Just brilliant. What the hell? I love the faces we surround people with. The intent was to try and, and get faces right out of Norman Rockwell art and people the background with it and and not in an artificial sense in a in a way that these are faces that are familiar to us but iconic images uh, rockwell like images of america that you could only find in america i thought these guys did a great job and i've seen i've seen both of these actors since in a, a, a number of different a different things they do have those great faces yeah I learned to write really quick on this show. <laughs> and I'm, I'm reading a book by the noir uh, author uh, David Goodis called The Moon in the Gutter, and there's a character in there uh, named Nick Andros, and so I'm guessing that that was uh, a tribute King made. What? I remember this was an incredibly difficult scene to shoot, and I also believe it was... Uh, we had a blizzard going on outside. I remember we'd go in this hot set, and I'd walk out to the trailer, and there was three or four feet of snow. It, it was probably eight pages worth. Uh, the average feature film shoots two pages a day. Uh, we shot eight pages. We, we would shoot anywhere from five to... Uh, one day we shot 11 pages, uh, and often jumping to one, two, three different locations a day. It was really guerrilla filmmaking. And even, and even at that rate, how long did we shoot this? How many weeks? This was 20 weeks of shooting. Wow, this is the longest I've ever shot a project. Me too. <laughs> I <laughs> hope the longest I ever will. We, we got to ski. We got to a wet river raft. We went through every season on this show. I love Ed in this movie. Yeah, such intensity. 
Well, you say we got to ski, you got yeah, to. Yeah, I should yeah. speak for myself. <laughs> I, you had a little more downtime yeah, than I did. a little bit. My wife was actually pregnant with our first uh, child during this, so I would commute back and forth. Uh, and I really... I, I, it ended up being L.A. to Salt Lake City. It was like a cab ride for me. I did it so many times. I got so used to it. Meet Geraldo. Geraldo, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, the virus your fellow townspeople contracted passes easily from human to guinea pig and vice versa, presumably. But Geraldo has been breathing your air via convector for the last three days. And Geraldo... Is fine and frisky. Now, this set was built uh, where the uh, cornfield was in the same uh, same set. One torn down and built after the other. However, it does appear that there is. Can you feel the ghosts of the Osmonds there? You, Mr. Redmond, or may I call you Stu? Just don't call me Geraldo. <laughs> I like that. Now look here, Stu. Let's. Uh, Let's try to get through this as painlessly as possible, what do you say? Now, because you shoot totally out of sequence, things like uh, beard growth are, are challenges to deal with. This was the first time uh, I'd seen this technique used of actually trimming the ends of the hair off of the actors and um, using um, static electricity machine and glue to attach short stubble of beard, so you'd get two or three days growth. Um, so that is actually not two or three days natural growth on Gary. It is uh, his own hair, but it came from the top of his head. What did you do? What did you people do? Still, please. No! Stand clear! I love that these characters think they're so protected from the disease by their uh, lovely lime green suits, and they have no idea that uh, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference to them. All right, now you listen up. I'm not responsible. And of course, those were not costume designed. Those are actual uh, medical suits that were ordered from a medical supply company. Or the nurses who come in to take your blood pressure. Then who is? No one. Everyone. And a reflective surface like that is not your friend when it comes to trying to hide a camera in a tiny little room like that. It's also not the sound man's friend. A lot of the uh, voice had to be redubbed. <laughs> Deets, calm down. I was just faking. Why? Why would you do a thing like that? You talk about this thing in here like you were outside of it. I just wanted you to get a little taste of what it's like on the inside. How'd you like it? You stupid son of a bitch. Oh, stretching the envelope for network television a little more there. We literally had to bargain with them, you know, uh, we'll give you two bitches for one bastard, that sort of thing. That's the way uh, it tends to work in the network world.
Reports of the support. One of our two days in New York City. Actually shooting scenes here. Many downtown shopping areas in southern Florida are virtually empty this morning, and the flu rumor actually seems to be gaining credence despite statements from health officials in Atlanta and Vermont. I love just the simple eeriness of the music for the transition here, rather than going to the expected big city sounds, loud rock and roll thing for that transition. Then we go into the noisy arcade. Now, this is supposed to be Los Angeles, but it is actually Salt Lake City. Sounds to me like you might just A television movie I did a couple of years ago, we used that same location over again. <laughs> Aline, I love you. Oh, don't I wish. Listen, I'm going to try and get the uh, the afternoon flight back, so you put on your sexiest number, and I'm going to take you out to dinner. Then I'll take you out dancing. Then maybe I'll just take you. You might want to consider delaying your trip back a few days. Why? What's the problem? Things are weird. People are really scared about this Captain Trips thing. Yeah, the radio here says it's just bull. And of course, if it's daytime in New York, where uh, Larry Underwood is, uh, it's three hours earlier in Los Angeles, where his girlfriend is. And uh, so people are dancing in a nightclub. And uh, at the very latest in the day, it must be two in the afternoon or something. I don't know. Nobody noticed at the time, but uh, it sure seems funny to me. Of course, the interior of the arcade, once again, is Salt Lake City. Sorry, I'm sorry, man. The rat man. Unfortunately, Rick Aviles, who played the Rat Man, uh, passed away a couple of years ago from AIDS. He was a stand-up comic and uh, an actor who uh, was pretty impressive in Ghost. That's where we first saw him. Now, here we are actually in New York City. Kareem was a, a friend of our executive producer, uh, Richard Rubenstein, who asked him to do this. And so it was great to get him. Imagine the middle of Times Square where we shot this, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Everybody was, there were hundreds of people just waiting to see him. Nice join here. Sharp-dressed man, baby. This is Miguel Ferrer. I'm playing Lloyd Henry. I'm in the passenger seat right there with uh, Richard Lineback. He was so real, he was scary. <laughs> you know, he was poke. Richard and I were in uh, acting class together almost 20 years ago, so we have actually played this scene many times <laughs> over the years. I'm sitting here with a handsome man named Jamie Sheridan. Jamie, why don't you say hello? Uh, yeah, this is uh, Miguel's buddy, Jamie Sheridan, and uh, I'm, I play Randall Flagg. Uh, you will see later how we become true blue buddies. <laughs> Miguel, why are you talking into that gun? Listen, you know, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. <laughs> this was, uh, actually, Sharp Dressed Man was in the script like almost all of the songs that appear here. The only one that was different was uh, the Crowded House song, Don't Dream It's Over. Which was great. It uh, set such a beautiful tone. My favorite song, what was in the script, was Fun, Fun, Fun by the Beach Boys. Ugh. Better choice yours. <laughs> yeah, that song came out great. This was the most compromised by television editing. They made us cut out all of the buildup, not all of the bullet hits, but most of them. You see, Lloyd? Help, 
fucker tried to shoot me. Oh. Poke. That hurts. So what's the experience like, you know, firing that gun? Oh. Good clean fun, Mick. <laughs> now this guy... I had had a badly, badly broken finger during this, and they would actually have to do a prosthetic every day to cover the splint. And this guy, when he was cuffing me off camera, was mangling my finger. <laughs> Finally, I just told him, you do that again, I'm going to get up and hurt you. He's Look, a stuntman, too. Yeah, he's putting on the cuffs. Oh, that's Jim Haney, yeah. And that left hand is just so badly broken. No acting there. Oh, it's severe pain, real. <laughs> now up on that pole, Jamie. That's Jamie. That's Jamie in crow makeup. Singing my song. <laughs> he used to look that good. <laughs> Singing my song. We have a rather large problem in Wyoming. And what a treat to be able to have Ed Harris. He was only here for two days for us. But um, just so potent. There's an intensity about him that uh, all you need is to look at his face to, to convey so much of the power of the scene. Here, just tight faces, tight faces telling the story. Well, do we know where these news people, these rabble-rousers are now? Yes, sir, we do. Well, get that videotape, Lynn. Any means necessary. I get a priority. Yes, sir. Any means necessary. I love the look of this little blue pill on the tip of his tongue. And all that that says. This shot was grabbed. That was actually a military helicopter that was out on maneuvers. They saw our shoot going on down below, and uh, we grabbed that shot of them coming in close. This was one of the things I really wanted to do, was just shoot it as if it were raw video footage, uh, like a real news shoot would be, and play it all for real, and cut it right into the film. Just raw video look. Wendy Phillips, again, was another Stephen King fan, loved The Stand uh, as a book, and just wanted to do anything in it. She's uh, a very successful actress. Uh, I first met her. She was in an Amazing Stories episode that I had written, and she just wanted to do anything to be in The Stand. Thank you. I don't know if she would have actually saluted to him or not. It doesn't feel that genuine, does it? That doesn't change the basic fact that our goose is pretty well cooked. Again, one of the things I like about this is the quiet. Television is never quiet, and I like the silence of these scenes, not milking them with music, just faces looking at each other, being in each other's presence, the simplicity of the words, the directness of the words, looking up at someone as he thinks. I understand it now. And one other line from that poem. Ed Harris had actually shaved his head for the firm, uh, which was a big surprise to us when he showed up. 
with that uh, gleaming paint. But it looks great, and it worked great in this. I think that beast might be on his way, Len. What do you think? A little more of the judgmental eye of God uh, point of view looking down on our military foe. In our mind, might be, sir. Yeats was right. Things fall apart. We're still in the part of the, um, the story where we're expanding that inverted pyramid that starts with Campion and goes up and up. And we've now got another major character here in uh, Nick Andros. And uh, I was just thinking as I looked at this, um, what a great job Rob Lowe did. Uh, how glad I am that we cast him against type. And uh, I think that a lot of times with really talented actors, and Rob's very talented, that ability to play somebody entirely new makes a big, big leap possible for them in what, what they're a actually able to accomplish. Uh, as for me, some of that can be said for some of these characters, and there is a lot to be said by, uh, for what you dare to do when you're young. I was probably 29 years old when I wrote The Stand, um, <laughs> and too young to be afraid by some of the challenges I was setting myself and just sort of riding the exhilaration of working on the story. And it really is exhilarating, getting a chance to trash the entire world in your imagination. But uh, I think that today, I would think twice, three times, and then maybe decide not to do this at all. Um, Nick Andros is a uh, deaf mute. Uh, some of the more uh, caring characters in here call him a deaf and dummy. And uh, I have never had experience with th these sorts of disabilities. And uh, I had to do a fair amount of reading in order to get it right. But most of what I did with Nick was based on my imagination. Um, I had to go back several times because Nick was always turning around at the sound of people making noises and uh, I had to rethink my entire perception of the world to make him work as a character. But uh, he ended up being one of my favorite people. I, I would say probably the biggest challenge of working with Nick was trying to uh, imagine him in scenes with other people, communicating with other people, and even thinking about his past and how he came to be what he was. But uh, he's turned out to be one of the favorites of the people who've read the book and watched the movie. And uh, I might say, too, on the subject of book into movie, that uh, uh, we had tried several times to get the stand going as a feature film with a number of different directors, a number of different producers, and uh, nothing had ever worked. And I knew from the moment that I saw the ABC adaptation of it that I wanted, finally, The Stand to be a miniseries for TV. Because it's the one great thing about the sort of thing that we're looking at here is that it's the only visual medium that really 
has that sort of relaxed, expansive feeling that novels have. So that for the novelist, the chance to adapt to this medium is, is a boom. Obviously, the money isn't as good as it is for a hit movie. But for me, thankfully, that isn't so much a concern as seeing the thing done in a way that's right. And uh, the one, ABC was eager to do it. And, and my one reservation that I expressed to them was, can you show the end of the world on network TV? And uh, they gave me a big smile and said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, you can show the end of the world on network TV if you do it after 9 o'clock p.m. and if you start with a parental disclaimer. But I would be uh, lying if I didn't say that I had deep doubts about whether they, they meant it. And uh, even here in this jailhouse scene, there's probably more mucus on view than uh, has ever been seen before or ever will be since on network TV. Uh, we literally used gallons of special effects snot in the course of this show. It's a very gooey plague. And uh, ABC, God love them, they, they never flinched from it. And uh, whew, there it is. God bless Mick Garris, too, who didn't flinch from uh, all the phlegm. People have um, talked about my playing this role as opposed to maybe some of the others, but uh, this is the role I wanted to play. It was the only role I was interested in, and uh, The Stand had been my favorite book. And when I heard they were making it, I, I actively called up and tried to see if I could be in it, and I in, in this role specifically. Things have changed, Ray. You might do well to remember that. This was a pretty challenging scene again. It was eight or nine pages long with a Steadicam master that followed all the way through with no cuts, even though we were going to cover it uh, with cutaways. I just wanted the energy of it continuing, continuous, and it was, it was fairly challenging. Um, there were a few problems. Uh, one of the actors uh, had some trouble remembering his lines. Uh, and, and it wasn't the guy who doesn't have any. <laughs> that's I'd like right. to point that out. But it was, it was pretty complicated, and again, it was snowing outside, and we had uh, the snot level uh, <laughs> creeping up. It was interesting in the book and in the film and all how just a cough meant so much, and the temptation was so big to make each of those moments operatic, and we just really had to hold back. I mean, every time someone coughs, you get it. You really get it. You know where that's going. And we really kind of cut a few of those out to try and make each one a little more potent and not too blatant. This is a hard hard scene for me because, um, you know, this character is nothing if not empathetic for other people, as, as you can see here where he's helping this guy out. And in theory, I could be contaminated by this guy. But two minutes Prior, I had a gun pointed at another guy and was ready to kill him if he didn't do what I said. So uh, it's always fun as an actor when you get to do that spectrum, and, and to do it in one scene is uh, really challenging. It was so great when every time we'd get on the set with Rob, you know, it's just everybody was the, the same way. The whole cast was just really eager to be there, really eager to do it. And it was such a difficult show and so complicated. 
and just that script was so vast, people ask how you could plan something like that, and all I can say is you have to trust the script. The script was wonderful. Then you just shoot it one scene at a time, one it's, scene at a time. It's funny that you say that, Mick, because uh, as I've gone along my way and try experimented with different styles as an actor, one thing I came to really work on on this show is to let the story do the heavy lifting. You know, uh, I mean, it's it's the end of the world. It's it's not a a nuanced uh, theme, and uh, if you just play the reality, the audience is going to uh, supply all of the emotion. It's it's remarkable how little emotion you have to supply as an actor when the theme is as vast as this is. Yeah, and the script was great. There are so many different acting styles in this, ranging from you to Gary to Molly to, to Matt Frewer to Corky Nemec. I mean, it's it's just fraught with different styles. But if you play, if you trust the scenes, each one will butt up against the next one just fine if the structure is there. And Steve did a brilliant job of that. I was I was so stunned when they told me that, that Steve was going to adapt his own book for this. I mean, I, I was, I mean, that, what an unbelievable gift to have. And then when he would be there uh, on the set, um, I mean, acting acting in the stand in front of Stephen King, I got to tell you, is, is a nerve-wracking experience. <laughs> so is directing. Yeah, I can, <laughs> or I, I was the first uh, couple of times. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But he was great. We'd, uh, I, my great memory with Stephen was... Uh, he and in particular his wife are basketball aficionados. I mean, she's an a, an archivist of basketball history, and I'm a huge basketball fan. So we would go to the uh, Utah Jazz games, and we got lost in a parking garage one night, and we couldn't find our car for our life. And Steve is getting more and more pissed off, and he turns and he goes, "You know what? The good news is I found my idea for my next book, Lost in a Parking Garage." <laughs> Loss of the parent here, you know, is such such uh, an emotional uh, powder keg. You know, this just to see the deterioration. You know, it's inevitable. There's no staving it off. You've been hearing the news reports, and this just right in your face, right in your face. Just the the disease is there, and it's your mother. And see, that's the thing that I always impressed me, Mick, with the tone that you went for in this movie that I think is a brave choice, and particularly, as Stephen alluded to earlier, to do it for a network television, is that shot of her right in your face. It, it's creepy. It's really, really creepy. And yet, it's also sympathetic because it is his mother. Yeah, you know, we that, didn't want to do it gratuitously, but there are things that it, you have to be confronted dead on, and, and visually that's the way to represent it to me. Here's an early digital effect shot. <laughs> Little digital smoke there. Speaking of uh, basketball. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And this is actually Las Vegas standing in for New York City. I didn't know that, this is Vegas. Wow. Yeah, this is Vegas. These kind of little nuances like this, I just make the show, I think. 
it's all the people. You know, this is a story about people. It's not a story about explosions or things. And, you know, the book is just one person's story after another. It's, it's so intimate, and that's, that's what I, I loved about it. Setting this in a real world, you know, it's not, people think Stephen King is about the, uh, the monster in the closet that jumps out and goes, boo, but it's really about the people who own the house that the closet is in. And that's what I think makes him so successful. Oh, God. No! Another telltale cough. <laughs> Being able to call on actors like uh, Ed Harris to come in and do something like this. Just two days, yeah. Yeah, I mean, adds a great weight to the show. This is the guy that uh, we had to leave behind in the jail. Oh, yeah, I remember this one. So, <laughs> this is actually one of my favorite scenes and one of my favorite... Oh, I see. Yeah, I remember. This is the... Uh... The Doctor. Again, the theme of reflected faces here in the car, in the window, in the mirror. <laughs> How's it going, Mutie? What I had my suspicions that he sort of enjoyed beating me up. <laughs> <laughs> now, admit it. There were times when you were a little afraid that there was going to be some knuckles ground into your cheek. Yeah, I get, I get beat up quite a bit in the show. Um, but but this, this fight in particular... None of this happened to you, Caleb. Oh uh, yeah, I'm, I'm having a sense memory moment right now watching it with my neck. <laughs> I had a big chiropractor bill. I just billed ABC directly. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, Patrick Kilpatrick. He did a great job. He's... I mean, he's so intimidating. And again, whenever we're outside, the whole point was to use a wide lens to see as much of the world as possible, whether it's Manhattan, Times Square, or anywhere else. You just want to see the world. We're on location. Let's see the world. And then again, the big city into this beautiful Ogunquit, Maine location, all the greenery, all the trees. We went through uh, all of the seasons. Uh, when you're shooting for five months straight, there's just no working around it. We started out on the sound stages while everything was covered in snow in Utah, and we thought it would never thaw. But finally, when spring came around and we were able to shoot these sequences, it was such a relief. But it was, the Utah weather was just miserable. Yeah, it was pretty tough. I mean, another reason why this could only be a miniseries is how else could you get the weather? other than shoot this long. I mean, you could create it, but, but it's always a hassle, and it never really looks as good as the real thing. We started in the thick of winter and ended in the summer. Oh, not the sarcastic little woman. Well, I like her. Okay. It's funny, I think, style-wise, Molly and Gary are so well-suited in this. Hello mm. there, this is Ray together. Yeah. They spent a lot of time together working. One topic of conversation. 
You can call it the super flu. And this was such a thrill. Uh, Kathy Bates had won the Oscar for Misery, and so knew Steve King through that, and he asked her if she would do this. And this whole sequence she did, we shot in half a day, one of our usual uh, two or three locations a day. She came in and, and uh, was there for four or five hours. And um, it was written in the book and in the script to be Ray Flowers, R-A-Y, was a, a male part. And we thought this would be a, a nice place to, to play a female role. And then King had the brilliant idea of asking Kathy Bates, and she was excited to do it and and uh, so thrilled to do it and showed up in Salt Lake City the day of the shoot we shot her and she went home and we shot her in more ways than one and it, uh, she was so good in it that it brings such an intensity to this sequence of course that's never stopped the real patriots among us has it you try to hang in there Lenora I'm trying Ray but have you ever smelled bodies on fire <laughs> I can't say that I have it's awful, Ray. Again, it's the humanity of the characters that makes Steve King's uh, work connect in such a great way. Ray, uh, first of all, <laughs> I just want to tell you that I love your show, Ray. You say you saw these GIs gunning down unarmed civilians? interesting. The evil military is very much a, a piece of the 1960s, not so popular these days, but uh, it sure is believable. Joke. Right? I mean, this has got to be a joke. I don't think so, Franny. I really don't think so. Hi there, you're on the air. Ray, you all right? Well, to tell you the truth, honey, it doesn't look real good for the kid right now. Several soldiers have just broken into the studio. They, they're fully armed and they're, they're, they're dressed in some kind of protective clothing. They're wearing, they're wearing respirators on their faces. I like the long relentlessness of this uh, of uh, of this scene. Just the long, slow build, and you know where it's going to go. And each shot just moves closer and closer and closer. I think it's one of Molly's best moments as well, uh, and just a great way to end an act. I don't know. He's closer now. The hard case. The dark man! He's coming! He's closer now! The dark man! The villain in the stand is Randall Flagg, the walking dude, the man with no face. Uh, to, me, to my mind, he's, he's the best villain that I've ever created, and he keeps showing up in various guises in a lot of my work. And uh, I think he's, he's succeeded with a lot of uh, readers and with the people who've seen the show because he's really out there. He's the spirit of our age. He's the spirit of our century. Uh, he's the voice of disunion. He's got a great sense of humor, and he's got a killer forefinger, as you can see in this, this scene here. Um, I like him because, like Stu Redman, he's a man of the people. I like him because he seems to me to represent everything about our society that's wrong. The monster is here, the agent of the plague is here, and uh, I think that he's only a, a symbolic figure of a lot of the things that are wrong with our society um, everywhere, 
a lot of the forces of disunion that we see in places like Littleton, Colorado, and uh, uh, Kosovo, various murders and senseless acts of criminality. But if there's going to be a, a bad guy, um, there has to be some sort of opposing force. And as I worked on the book, I began to see that I wanted to bring these two forces into direct conflict. And I didn't want them to be little good and little evil. I wanted them to be large forces. And if you're going to have a character like Randall Flagg um, that's, that's evil, I thought, what do we put up against him? And uh, I had read somewhere in a newspaper about a, a woman in, I think it was Indiana, had just been given a plaque by the President of the United States because she was 105 years old and she was the oldest resident in that particular state. And somebody came out to see her and she had a little farm out there in the Indiana heartland. And uh, he said, well, what do you think about uh, Indianapolis? What do you think about Chicago, those places? And she said, I ain't never been. And uh, he said, well, why not? And she said, I didn't see any reason to leave. I've got what I need right here, good water and the God of my understanding. I thought, that's great. Um, I want to use that woman as a kind of mythic figure of, of good that my people like Stu Redman and Nick and, and uh, Larry Underwood and, and uh, all the rest of these people can coalesce around. And then I began to see a real uh, kind of epic tale with forces of good gathering in one place and force of evil gathering in another place and a chance for a quest and a journey and to really confront these issues of technology in the service of evil. And uh, I really started to cook on the story. And I love the way that uh, Mick Garris filmed this, this uh cornfield sequence. We couldn't find any corn that jibed with our production schedule. And uh, it ended up being, oh, goodness, that jumped, that jumped me still. We ended up filming the cornfield in a studio in Denver. Well, a lot of people think that rats are, are scary things, but the, the rats, I've had pet rats. And they're it was a scary awesome. prospect. And they had to really, and they did really nibble on my shoes and my and come up my leg because it was, it was covered with peanut butter or something right. like that. And, <laughs> but I wasn't, I really wasn't afraid because they, they seemed, these rats seemed to, to know their business. <laughs> they were Hollywood rats. Uh, 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 but they were, so I wasn't frightened as I was absolutely astonished by how that nobody, nothing, I, I didn't really, I, I think I would have screamed at one run up my skirt or something. But <laughs> it was a, an astonishing thing. And I wish that had been longer in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that, rats. most yeah. of the scene with the rats was cut out, the one yeah. where you're out walking in the in the cornfield. Yes, I felt that was, yes. And, and, and also, as a matter of fact, there, yes, there was quite a bit more in, in the in the cornfield with, with, with those rats. You actually killed one of the rats in, in the cornfield. Not for real, but yes, in yes, the Yes, yes, yes. It may look like that. <clears throat> I, uh, this, um, and oh, this, the, uh, see, 
Gary Sinise, all these people who come that I that I have summoned in a sense uh, through through dreams through oh it's it, this was some I don't know I'm I'm thinking there was many kind of spooky things began to happen around that time I remember Ossie was my husband was supposed to do a show and. A, a film someplace, but it, it, it fell through or something. And he's been working on a play for a long time, so he decided that, that we would come together because when we can, we like to come together. So I hadn't asked him, but he said, he says, I, I think I'll come out there with you to do, um, to do, um, while you're, while you're shooting the stand. And I was overjoyed. Uh, and and he would come around on the set, and he he he, he never does that because first of all he never has time, and second of all, but he just never does that. That was the first time that he he, he voluntarily came there, and it, also in the play as you, as in the film as you know, is um, uh, uh, Mo, was Moses Gunn, who was to play the part of the judge. Right. Now, Moses, I've known, we've known, both known Moses for a long, long time, and we were trying to hang out and have dinner, and then we both come from a, a theater groups in New York, from the basements and lofts and those kinds of community theaters. But um, at one point, um, Moses came down with something like um, an asthma attack. Mm. He, he, he'd always had a kind of asthma thing going anyway. I mean, he had a, a way of catching his breath and, and breathing for as long as I've known him. But when he had, when he went into the hospital, we were, while we were out there, uh, I, I was astonished. But, and then... And he had some sort of flu on top of it. Mm -hmm. and, and he wasn't well. No, he had only shot one day with us. Uh-huh. And, and honestly, I, you know what? That was the first time I felt, I always thought that he was extra sensitive, but I felt that he knew how ill um, he was. Because when he had, he had said he was going to go home at one point, and he didn't go, he stayed. This was Moses or? No, Asi. Asi, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't in the, in the film then. Right. He had, nothing, he had nothing to do with it. He was just brought his work. So when it came, when it, came about that Moses was too ill to do the part. Ossie didn't even seem surprised, you know what I mean? Really? No. He said he knew that Moses was, was he thought that he was sicker than we had imagined he mm. was. And as I looked at Moses and listened to him breathe, we went to see him in the hospital and we several times, and we, we took him stuff. And I think Moses knew too that he wasn't going to be in it. Really? it was a, that was a moment in, in one time in the hospital, I think the three of us knew. We were talking all, you know, all, all the opposite, but I think the three of us knew that Moses wasn't going to be well enough to do that part. Mm. <laughs> and I, especially Asi, I think he knew it. Oh, yes, wow. yes, indeed. <laughs>
Chicken with me, beautiful. It's so dark. Get started. Time's short. Abigail Freeman. Hemingford home.
For me, one of the attractions of the stand was getting a chance to imagine a modern America where people are suddenly without resources other than the ones that they can muster for themselves, uh, where all at once you're surrounded by the trappings of modern society, but you return to a kind of frontier world where you're forced to do the things for yourself that ordinarily, when civilization is running the way that it's supposed to, we give to services. Um, and of course, one of the most intimate services that, uh, that we have is uh, taking care of our dead loved ones. Um, I thought to myself uh, that I wanted to show Fran Goldsmith seeing to her father and that this would be a way to introduce the second phase of life after the plague. Franny herself is fine, but everyone that she knows in town, symbolized here by her father, have been taken away from her. And so far as she knows, she'll shortly find out otherwise that uh, Harold has also survived. But here we see a young woman who's been forced to see to her own um, loved one. And uh, of course, here's Harold who's discovered that if the plague has taken away, in the case of Fran and her father, uh, it's also given because here is poor, unloved, pimply Harold Lauder who's now driving around in a Cadillac, the Loudermobile, if you like. And uh, he, uh, but of course, Cadillac isn't the same as having somebody that you love. And Harold is deeply smitten with Fran, and he sees a chance here to. Uh, Let's, let's put it this way, to make a little time. But not only that, I think it would be natural for any people, uh, no matter how different they might be in some ways, to uh, be drawn together in the aftermath of something like this. And one of the great pleasures and attractions of, of the story to me was seeing how Fran and, and Harold would do together um, in the wake of the plague. I loved the way that their story developed the way that their story grew. And it was interesting to me, particularly with the character of Harold Lauder, uh, an event like this, it seems to me, just cuts through the middle of life as we've lived it. Harold is an obvious loser. He's the sort of kid in, in, who in high school uh, used to get his uh, underwear yanked up in wedgies and uh, people would rub his glasses and uh, thump him, and, and he clearly feels a lot of that uh, loser's antagonism. And uh, the interesting thing to me is that in the wake of the plague, he's given a chance to reinvent himself, to become a new, improved Harold Lauder. And instead of doing that, um, he elects to hold on to his grudges and his anger and his resentments and stay pretty much as he's been all along. And for me, that was one of the great revelations that I had in regard to human character. And I think when you write something, a novel, particularly a long one like The Stand, you're not so much sitting down to tell people what you know. That's boring. I'm finding out for myself uh, every time what, 
what human nature is. The character of Harold Lauder was interesting. Uh, Corky Nemec, who played the part, is obviously a tall and slender fellow. Um, the choice was to go for the best actor, and he, he just gave us a great reading. He's a terrific actor, very kind of eccentric choices. Rather than kind of pad him out with a fat suit, we decided, you know, we'll just give him a little bit of a butt, make him a little geekier, uh, you know, put some of the uh, pimples and blemishes and the like, and then just get him cleaner and more athletic uh, as the show went along. And I thought that worked out really well. Um, he really did a great job. Harold Lauder in the book, of course, is an enormous fat fellow. Um, something quirky, or Corin, as his official uh, name reads in the credits, um, really did a great job. Can you ride a motorcycle? Yeah. Just taught me. Oh, yeah. All of the um, music, all of the pop songs that are in this show uh, were in the script, except the one coming up here. Uh, the Crowded House song, Don't Dream It's Over, was something that I just thought had the right kind of tone of empty melancholy for this. Um, and uh, I think I mentioned before that uh, Stephen King actually wrote in the Beach Boys' Fun, 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 which was nice counterpoint, and I understood why he did that, but um, I just think this was more effective. And then when we, uh, we used that song and got permission from Crowded House to use it, um, then uh, a cameraman and I went up to Ogunquit, Maine, just, just us, and grabbed a bunch of shots from around the town to really establish it so it wouldn't all be Salt Lake City. Anyway, I just think this song as it comes in here is, is, is quite a beautiful song, one of the best pop songs ever. And I've been a big fan of Crowded House and all of its offshoots. In fact, Tim Finn, who was temporarily a member of Crowded House, has a song that we used in the uh, Shining miniseries. Uh, my name is Pat McMahon. I was the editor of The Stand. <clears throat> I was brought into the project by Peter McIntosh, one of the producers, and I met the director for one brief moment, and it was kind of a leap of faith. I uh, cut the project back in New York City while they shot for five months out in uh, Salt Lake City and uh, other places. Um, I would work and send Mick about 15 to 20 minutes of cut material every week, and uh, we just kind of plodded along, not knowing really how the whole thing was going to turn out. The Avid, which is an electronic editing system, was new at the time, and you couldn't keep more than 15 or 20 minutes of cut material on the uh, machine. So I never had a chance to look at the whole thing until the whole project was over. Mick and I sat down with uh, Stephen King and the executive producers and screened for eight hours straight, and uh, we're quite blown away. It was, uh, it was working at that point, even though we had about an hour worth of material to cut out of it but it was uh, quite a revelation to all of us. It was a great experience. So I had never met Pat before <clears throat> the initial meeting, the interview, uh, and uh, basically he was the only New York editor I'd been introduced to by our line producer, Peter McIntosh. So uh, I knew his previous work um, from various films and television. He had cut Wild Palms. He had cut uh, the original uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and various things in between. 
but I'd never met him. And like Pat says, it was a total leap of faith. Uh, and it worked out great. He has cut everything I've done since then except for one television movie. This was a great opportunity to actually shoot in New York City and in Central Park. Uh, the only locations we shot in New York were Central Park and Times Square and a couple of shots in Brooklyn. Giddy up, boy. Here's Nadine Cross. Uh, if there's any character in The Stand that I never really understood, it was Nadine. Um, she's totally enigmatic to me. Good, bad. Uh, I loved her, and she was interesting to me, but uh, it was very difficult for me to know what to make of her. She was named after the Nadine in the Chuck Berry song, the one that goes, Nadine, honey, is that you? And uh, my first uh, conception of Nadine was simply that she would be somebody that Larry would meet and would fall in love with. And she ended up to be a lot more complex and a lot more strains than that. Um, Laura Sangiacomo was an interesting choice for the, for the part. And uh, I love to watch her and Adam Stork work together, particularly in the trip out through New York and the Lincoln Tunnel. The Lincoln Tunnel segment is uh, one of the ones that readers usually mention to me as something that scared them. And, of course, I tend to be a little claustrophobic uh, in nature anyway, and the idea of being stuck in a tunnel or having to even find my way around New York City in the wake of the plague uh, scared the devil out of me. And I thought, well, they're going to go over a bridge or they're going to go through a tunnel to get out of the city. And of course, I felt like they had to get out of the city because I thought, who in their right mind would want to stay in New York? in the wake of uh, a killing plague. If there are 8 million people in New York City, this is like a, a math problem in hell now that I think about it. There are 8 million people in New York City and 7 million of them are dead. How long does it take before the smell gets so bad it just knocks you right down where you stand? So here Nadine and Larry are probably doing something that's a fantasy for all of us. Uh, they're sitting in a really good restaurant and eating everything in the place, and uh, of course there's no bill or anything at the end. I'm sure that whatever the bottle of wine is that they have, that it's the best one in the entire restaurant. But that doesn't change the problem. They have to get out of New York City. And uh, when I was thinking about the bridge versus the tunnel, there really was no choice at all. It has to be the tunnel because uh, of the claustrophobic nature of the, the, the walk through the tunnel. And that kind of symbolic passage, it's almost like uh, being reborn. I mean, it's not just the odds of getting shot. You have any idea what it's going to smell like in two weeks? Five million people rotting in the July sun. What is that? Vitamin C. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's none of my business. Apology accepted. Mostly because I think you're right. The Big Apple is baked. 
Do you really want me to go with you, Larry? Yeah. You betcha. Good. When? Well, I'd say the sooner the better. <laughs> Where? We go west, towards Nebraska. There's a town called Hemingford Home. Nebraska, why Nebraska? I've been having these dreams about it. An old black woman calls herself Mother Abigail. Town's real enough, I checked the, the road atlas. You, you mean you're having visions of an old black woman? Yeah. You haven't had dreams like that? Get out of this graveyard. How I love to love Nadine. This was some of the first stuff we shot. It was at the Utah State Penitentiary. Where a, lot, a lot of Stephen King fans in Utah State Penitentiary. Remember, Mick? <laughs> this was the creepiest thing about this cell block was we went in there before all the cells were dressed. And all of the uh, prisoners had heard that Stephen King was going to be there. And they all left notes for them in here. You have to. Starve if you don't. Probably the worst part was there was one cell we went in there. They separated the predators from the victim-type criminals there, if you recall. A lot of rapists and child molesters and things. The most oh, horrifying. On, on, this, on this floor, right? Right. This, You're talking about the collage? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Well, there were... Not a real rat, by the way. Fake rat. No. <laughs> no rats were killed in the making of this motion picture. Uh, but in this one cell... Uh, it was a child molester cell, and there were all these hustler-type spread-leg shots of naked models, all surround, neatly surrounding a cut-out picture of this little eight-year-old girl that they assume was the victim of this child molester. In there. That's more horrific than anything I think we made. That's truly creepy, yeah. Well, wasn't it bizarre actually shooting in the prison with the prison population? It was. It was. It's not the first time I've done it. Um, uh, I've shot in, in a place called Statesville, Stateville, outside of Chicago, the sister prison to Joliet, which was a lot more scary. Big violent offenders as opposed to kind of fat white guys from Utah. So <laughs> I, I was very casual in uh, in Utah. Wasn't Were it? you among the population there as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was really horrifying. 
Well, this was the first three days of real production. The first thing we shot, actually, was the Flu Buddy commercial. But the real production involving all the cast and everything was in the Utah State Prison. And the death row, where Ray Walston dies, um, was a real death row, and where over 90 criminals had been uh, executed, executed, oh. including Gary Gilmore. Uh-huh. All of them had Here's stayed. one of my favorite guys. <laughs> Trash can man. Love him. The first guy we ever read for the, uh, for the entire miniseries, and he blew us away, Matt Frewer. Hey, Trent. The great Matt Frewer. The great Matt Frewer. So what was your reaction when you first... I mean, I know you were a big Stephen King fan. You Huge. really wanted to be part of this. Yeah. But when you got that 20-pound block of script... I was just so happy uh, after, after seeing some of the other Stephen King adaptations, especially for television. Uh, I was just so happy to see how true it was to the novel, particularly that Stephen had written every word of it himself. And that that was where your attention went, uh, not only in the directing but but also largely in the casting. There was there was some really strange casting choices made in some other Stephen King material, which shall remain nameless. But uh, you know you know what I mean. Uh, that uh, I, I was just so thrilled to, to see as one by one everybody came on board. I was like, oh, perfect. You well, know? you came in for the part of Lloyd. Is that the one part you? Uh, most interesting. You wanted to do flag. Didn't I you? wanted to do flag, and 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 you and everybody else sort of let me know. I said, well, we're sort of going for some bigger fish. We're talking to Chris Walk, and we're talking to uh, James Woods, Jimmy Woods, who, and who was the other guy too? Um, the guy from Wild uh, Heart, Jeff uh, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, they were all the scary we guy, talked about. the Wild at Heart guy. Willem Dafoe. Yeah, you were yeah, talking to him. I yeah. said, okay, well, shoot, I understand. <laughs> I said, well, if you don't get those guys, let me know. And then I heard uh, that uh, you guys were talking to Jamie. Yep. And Jamie really wasn't a, a King fan. And he called me and goes, eh, you know, I don't know. I don't know from Stephen King. They don't want to pay me, blah, blah, blah. I said, if you don't do this part, I'm going to come over there and kick your ass personally. <laughs> he said, really? I said, Ugh. Jamie, please. And, I'm, and he was fabulous. He was fantastic. Interesting thing about that final uh, tank that blows up uh, in the oil field here. That's a miniature. We built that tank. Really? Yeah, that tank is only about uh, 12, 15 feet tall. Wow. The crows or ravens were some of the best actors in here. I think I talked about that before. A lot of the background here was uh, actually some of the first digital work I'd ever had done in that wide shot. We actually did kind of a poor man set up for a digital background. Those prunes did the trick. Why don't they taste nasty? <laughs> Once in every generation, the plague shall fall among them. That's what it says in the book. Seems like you maybe went a little too far this time. No. 
Rats in the corn loft. And the rats are his, ain't they? Well, a day. Feel them coming in my direction. Some of them will be going on to him, won't they? I hear you, Lord, and I'm in the way of doing your will. But I don't much like it. I'm six years old. Seems a mighty long in the tooth to be leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Or the children of America into Colorado. be taken from his lips and I'm praying the same thing <laughs> probably get about the same answer too <laughs> your will to bring them on, God. Better do it before I lose my guts. 
I think that <clears throat> one of my favorite characters in the novel, The Stand, was Lloyd Henry, and uh, one of my favorite actors is Miguel Ferrer, and it was terrific to get him to play Lloyd, to find out that uh, he was a fan of the book and that he wanted to uh, work in the, in the movie. In fact, uh, when we talked to him about it, I, I remember him coming into uh, the office where we were doing casting and that sort of thing and saying who do I have to blow to play Randall Flagg and uh, we just kind of laughed we really didn't want him to play Randall Flagg because people know that Miguel Ferrer is Miguel Ferrer they may not know him by name but they know he they know his face because he's been around and my feeling and I kind of foisted this on Mick a little bit, was that whoever played Randall Flagg should be somebody that the audience wasn't terribly familiar with. That is, I didn't want people to be saying, oh, there's Miguel Ferrer playing the most evil villain in the history of film, or there's Alan Alda playing the, the devil, or, uh, oh, look, it's, it's Elliot Gould and he's being a bad guy this time. I wanted to find somebody that we didn't know and somebody that possibly would make the ladies' hearts go pity-pat. I wanted somebody that looked almost like uh, one of the uh, heroes in the, if you've ever seen the Sweet Savage Love paperback romances, I wanted a, a look that was sort of like that. But there are a lot of stories built into the, the stand, and I was kind of fascinated with all of them. And Lloyd's story interested me in particular. Lloyd is this small-time criminal who is uh, taken in by a much more homicidal and much more dangerous and, frankly, much more unlovely character than he, uh, Polk, who's killed. And uh, Lloyd ends up in jail. And the reason, what interested me, I think, here, terrible, horrible idea would be, suppose a plague like this happened, and suppose you were immune, that would be a great thing. But then suppose that you locked up, you were locked up, myself, and, and you, all your co-prisoners died. You probably wouldn't care so much about that, but if your jailers died too, and if they didn't come along and, and uh, let you out, then you would be forced to scratch out the last few unspeakable days of your life behind bars as you slowly starved to death. So that I had a really wonderful time with uh, uh, Lloyd and, and uh, him getting a piece of his cot and, and uh, killing a rat, breaking its back while it nibbled away at uh, a previously deceased cellmate and then uh, hooking the, the rat over into his own cell and saying, I'm going to keep this just in case. Now, obviously, TV... Even the long-form TV, it's a case of balancing things out. Uh, the novel for television giveth in terms of length, but it also taketh away in terms of explicitness. For me, that's not always a bad thing. I have a tendency to be very lazy and to go for the gross-out. I, I know that that's a, a quick shortcut to 
the well we won't say to the audience is hard but certainly it's a shortcut to their gag reflex if you know what I mean but uh, in a lot of cases on TV the gross out is just not possible every now and then you can get a good yucky thing in there for instance we do have a quick shot of the rat uh, in uh, Lloyd's cell and we can see that uh, somebody has been nibbling it but you can't really get down and dirty the way that you could in the book where you actually see Lloyd picking up that rat by its uh, front paws and its back paws and just sinking his teeth into that rat's belly and working, the, working them through the fur to the meat underneath. And uh, obviously that's a really gruesome thing, but I'm sure that under the circumstances uh, you just tell yourself it was chicken and go ahead anyway. So I missed that, but I thought that Henry gave a great performance, and one of the nice things, I talked a little bit earlier about how you have to try and love all your characters. It's, it's maybe a little bit easier to love a Mother Abigail or a Stuart Redman or a Franny Goldsmith than it is to love uh, a Lloyd Henry, and yet we can see that he's also our representative in the story. His, his fears are our fears, his desire to please the man who's uh, saved him from a terrible death are our desires. And also, he's a loser who's been uh, given the chance to be something greater than himself. And he takes it, and uh, he's loyal to the end. You have to give him that. And here we see, uh, we see Larry and Nadine getting ready to go into the tunnel. Um, in the novel, of course, it's the Lincoln Tunnel. Anybody from New York looking at this will know damn well that that's not the Lincoln Tunnel. It's actually a tunnel in Pittsburgh where they allowed us to film for a couple of days. And uh, people who've seen the miniseries sometimes come up to me and say, well, you know, the scene in the tunnel was great, but it wasn't as good as the book. But in all, with all due respect, I have to say that people who read novels almost always have that feeling. When things translate to the visual me me medium, they just never seem as good. Why me, huh? Why me? So this is Pittsburgh playing uh, the Lincoln Tunnel here. Um, we did shoot in New York for a couple of days. Uh, we shot in Pittsburgh for a week. Uh, the access to shooting was much, much uh, simpler uh, in the city of Pittsburgh, which is a great city. The people were great. The crews were great. Um, this was a pretty complicated uh, scene to shoot. Uh, in the book, it all takes place in total darkness. And even in the script, I believe, it was written to just take place in the darkness. But we couldn't do a radio show on television here. Uh, and so the idea that I had was that there were car lights on that were slowly dying. The power was going on these cars, blinkers. So it would be sort of a kaleidoscope of different lighting techniques and things that, that would... Uh, allow us as the audience to see what was going on and to be able to build some of the tension. All of these cars were brought in basically by extras, um, their own cars. We pulled into this, uh, this tunnel, had them play the corpses, uh, as well as a bunch of dummies in the corpse, uh, uh, the dummy corpses. But uh, it was a pretty complicated scene, and this, people would constantly ask me when I told them I was making the stand, 
well, what about the Lincoln Tunnel scene? How can you possibly do the Lincoln Tunnel scene? Is the Lincoln Tunnel scene going to be in it? And uh, the Lincoln Tunnel scene was obviously a very crucial sequence uh, to the telling of the story. I guess it had a very indelible effect on the people who'd read the book. And I had hoped that we could do some sort of justice to it. It's not as tense as I would hope it to be. Uh, I hope it does have some tension there, and I hope there's a, a visual element to it that's somewhat different from the rest of the show. Um, making something for television has a lot of its own very, very specific challenges. The obvious ones are um, commercial breaks, censorship. You just cannot make an R-rated movie uh, for commercial TV. You also have the length problem. You have to make shoot a film and then fit it into, at this time it was, I think, 89 minutes and 44 seconds for each two-hour slot. Um, so you not only had to make it a very specific length, you had to cut it to the exact frame. Uh, so that's very challenging to try and cut something that specific. Of course, people do it every day, uh, but when you're shooting eight hours of material, it's really difficult to know how long uh, your footage is going to be when it's cut together. This is Billy Corso here who did most of the makeups uh, for the show, who played the uh, corpse that, uh, that Larry Underwood imagined speaking to him. At any rate, uh, not only do you have to make it a very specific length, but you also have to basically start and stop several times. There are seven acts in every two-hour movie on uh, network television. And so basically you have to keep raising and lowering uh, the, the tension levels. You have to start and stop six times uh, when you're making a film for television. And in this case, 24, well, 28 times because we had four two-hour movies. So a lot of things like that are, are, are specific to television and are antithetical to raising tension and fear, which is something people expect from a Stephen King story. Uh, fortunately, there's a lot of non-horrific drama in this miniseries, a lot of it that is about human beings, and we wanted to make that as real world and as grounded and as emotionally full as we possibly could, which I think is one of the one of the really strongest elements of Stephen King's work anyway. It works on you not because of the monster in the closet jumping out and going boo, but because of the people who live in the house that has the closet with the monster in it. And that's what we tried to bring to the miniseries as well. So King himself on a set is not at all what you might imagine. Uh, he is like a big kid with the best train set uh, under the Christmas tree. He jokes, he's goofy, he's funny, he plays, and he's just one of the most remarkable people you could ever uh, hope to meet. Uh, aside from being incredibly intelligent and literary and intellectual and talented, he's, he loves to play his guitar and play classic rock songs and sing songs with his band and the like, and he's just an incredibly supportive and magnetic uh, personality to have around when you're shooting. You need as much positive input as you can get, and Steve is a great source of that. He's also somebody I can only refer to as Steve. Once anybody meets him and gets to know him, to call him Stephen feels pretentious.
Right, Pat? I remember when he came into the cutting room for the first time, and I really got a chance to spend time with him. He came over with his wife, Tabby, and uh, he, he introduced himself as Steve King, and he uh, immediately asked where the coffee was and went out to the coffee machine and brought it back for me and my assistant, Donna Donato. I mean, he's very unpretentious, and it's not forced with him. He's, he's just a great guy. I was very fortunate to have worked with him. I love him. Yeah, when I first uh, saw him in New York, uh, when we went there to do the... Actually, uh, I think it was to discuss uh, Sleepwalkers. Yeah, I was screening Sleepwalkers for him there. There he was with his blown-out sneakers, his torn T-shirt, just <laughs> ripped jeans in a, in a burger diner in, in Manhattan. And uh, no one would have looked twice at him except for that famous I face and that six-foot, five-inch frame or whatever it is. Jersey never smelled so good. <laughs> Attleboro, Massachusetts is, of course, Orem, Utah. This is uh, pretty much right across the highway from the sound stages uh, that we shot um, in Orem. And uh, we basically, this is a power station, and the house on this property um, is uh, where the, the people who run the power station actually live. This is wonderful because it's part of, I think we had maybe a week or two of spring in Utah where the weather was beautiful and it really made me start to like the area because I must tell you, with the weather, it was a hideous place. Uh, we were shooting, uh, when we were shooting on locations, we were shooting an average of two locations a day, sometimes more and running around, and the weather was never what we wanted it to be. And looking at Utah in this sunlight just brings back some nice, happy memories of the weather, and those are rare. So again, we tried to get as much of the greenery as possible. Now, uh, Ray's dog, his real name, uh, I forget his name, Ben. His real name was Ben. And this dog was sweet as can be and dumb as the day is long. I mean, this dog, you'll notice when he shows up in the scenes, um, he's in the beginning of the scene, and by the time we're into coverage, he's made his way away. Well, that was intentional because he could never do the same thing twice. Uh, and I love dogs, uh, but for some reason, this dog, much as I loved him, just was not uh, exactly a born-to-act dog. This was a very difficult to shoot scene for a number of reasons. Obviously, the sensitivity of, of uh, playing an intimate scene between actors. Um, I know Laura was a, a little uptight about it, but I think, um, I think Adam was actually the best man at her wedding uh, to her first husband. Um, add that to the silk of the sleeping bags constantly getting in the way of the dialogue, and it, it was a bit of a challenge. I mean, the whole thing was a challenge. We were shooting so much footage. We were shooting as much as 11 pages in a day of script. Uh, and all of this was going back. I would be sending the material to my editor in New York. Um, and basically, at the end of every day, I would look at the dailies and give my uh, notes 
into a tape recorder. My assistant would type them up, fax them to Pat, and Pat would try and work from them. But he's getting footage from two or three different scenes in a day, some days finishing out. So it had to be really a complex situation for you. Well, it was, but it was... Uh it was complex, as I said before, because the Avid wasn't as developed as it is now. We didn't have as much memory, so I had to kind of wait for a lot of scenes to get all the coverage. And once I got it, I could put them together. But uh, Well, with an eight-hour project like this, you're getting scenes that don't tie together at all. These right. are scenes from hour one, hour eight, hour three. Uh, so you couldn't really build the momentum until it was all complete. I know, and I wasn't sure if I was confusing you either by sending you all this cut material because it was all over the map. Of course you were. Was, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you. I love to really see the faces um, nice and close for scenes like this where there's a lot of silence uh, and just see what's going on behind the eyes. And those faces are very expressive. Adam and, and Laura were both, I mean, they photographed beautifully, the good actors. But the dreams were some of the most fun to do. It, it just allowed us to really go, well, Adam looks a little like the Incredible Hulk here in this green light, but, but it just allowed, it freed us up to just tell the story visually and try to, to do something in a, with a slightly surreal edge without going masturbatory with the, the work, but going a little more uh, subjective. Hemingford home, or Boulder, one place or the other. Of course, inside this tent was back on our stage in Utah, and here we are. This, I believe, is the last shot of the show, the last thing we shot. And uh, you can, we spent all night out in the Valley of Fire in Nevada here. And in a couple of these angles, you can see a little bit of sunlight just creeping in to the uh, sand dunes there. It's very, very hot. And uh, we had a, 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 a large silk set up to reflect the uh, sunlight, and it was just covered with insects. There, this is the shot you can see the sun hitting the sand dunes in the background. But it was probably 110 degrees, even though it was 5 in the morning. And just so difficult fighting the light. That's a problem with working on location as well, is that... You have to fit your scenes into the daylight or lack of it. If you're shooting night scenes, you're going to lose the night. If you're shooting day scenes, you're going to lose the day. And uh, it takes a really good production team to be able to keep everything on track like that. So were there any tricks you had to do for things that may not have worked out uh, in production? Well, that was so long ago, I don't remember. <laughs> Um, the thing I wanted to add to what you just said was that it was, uh, you know, we had, we had winter, we had blizzards we had to fight through, we had a uh, hot summer desert that we had to have that uh, was written into the script, and uh, spring as you see right here, and it was, uh, it was everything was covered in this. 
The problem with with Utah, too, was that for it was the worst winter for the last hundred years. We planned on being in the soundstage for the first month and shooting uh, all of the interiors that we had to do there. And then we'd go outside and it would be spring. Well, spring never came. (laughs) We had, like I said, a week, maybe two at the most of nice weather out of the entire six months that we spent in the beautiful state of Utah. The character Tom Cullen, uh, who is the big sort of uh, uh, mentally retarded fellow that uh, turns up in uh, Oklahoma and becomes Nick Andros's friend, is actually based on uh, somebody that my mother worked with. My, my mother uh, was a mental health uh, aid at a facility in Maine. And uh, her job was housekeeper, but she had these sub-housekeepers uh, who uh, were in the institution, and she had this, this one woman that uh, I really liked who is uh, very large, and uh, it seemed like her skirt was always crooked. She'd have one side of it pulled way up about to her rib cage and the other down over her hip bone. So it all, the hem of it always hung at this like 45 degree slant. And uh, her name was Ellen, only she would uh, shake your hand in this very business-like way and say, hi, my name is Ellen, M-O-O-N. That spells Ellen. And uh, I thought to myself, I, from the time that I met her, that I would love to put her in a story and I never really did, but uh, Tom Cullen just sort of walked on in the in the stand, and uh, I loved his his uh, penchant for building little um, uh, tableau out of mannequins. And I, when the, everybody ends up in Boulder, he's able to decorate his house. And if every character is in part the person who makes that character up or invents the character, I thought to myself, I would love to have a house like that that was decorated with stuffed animals and fire plugs and uh, mannequins and all that other stuff. But I particularly liked bringing him into contact with, with Nick because, uh, and Tom says this at one point, he says, uh, you can't talk and I can't think. Certainly, he can think, but he can't read. So their ability to communicate is really, really limited, and yet they become good friends. Tom is a case of a character walking into the book and fulfilling a purpose that I did not foresee. I don't work from an outline. I generally sit down every day and just see where the story's going. I usually have some sort of a vague idea of where things will turn out. But I certainly had no sense of uh, the pivotal role that Tom Cullen would play um, in the end of the book. And Bill Fagerbacke, who was in Coach, uh, walked in when we were casting the part and immediately became Tom Cullen. There was no question. I thought that uh, I'd never seen a character spring so completely out of the pages of a book and just appear in front of me. 
And uh, I just loved his enthusiasm, and I loved the way he connected with uh, the character. It was fantastic. And like Gary Sinise, he has this kind of sense of open Americanness that, that seemed to suit the theme of the, the book as well. Yes. The up and went to Kansas City. This is one of my favorite moments in the show. It always makes me emotional, made me emotional doing it. Just reading his lips. I have a Down syndrome sister, so it was really important to me to to play Tom Cullen as real. And uh, Bill did just such a great job. I had never seen Coach and had never really known Bill's work until he came in and read for us. And it was so sweet and so emotional. And people who have mental challenges sometimes are real funny and know it. And the sense of humor that comes out can be so real and so sweet and so really lovely that Bill really got it. And it was great to be able to work with a character like that um, because I'd experienced it firsthand in my own family and know that you don't have to be very serious about the subject, that you can have some fun with it as well as the emotional stuff. But the beautiful childlike stuff that uh, that Tom Cullen does is, is played so well between and and Rob playing off of him. That there's such a depth of a bond between them here that's so lovely that I just uh, I love these moments. I like the the physical nature that we develop constantly. Our relationship is very physical because our communication skills obviously aren't what you would hope. Drive a car? So you notice we do a lot of touching, and and it's also rare to see two guys doing that. It's just a, it's just it's a really wonderful, deep friendship. There's kind of a, a Laurel and Hardy sweetness between the two of you there. That, yeah, that, yeah. That works really, really nicely. He copies you, he looks up to you, you know, you do a gesture and he does it too. It's it's really a good performance. I'll never forget reading M-O-O-N, that spells Tom Cullen, reading that book. Boy, that left, you know, once you read that, you never forget it. It really is a remarkable character. Yeah, you just see the word moon and you think of the stand. You absolutely do. At least I do. Now, an interesting thing about the shooting of this scene was that we shot it in Ogden, Utah. And that diner wasn't really a diner, and those shops weren't what they look like. Some of them were. But there's a bar there. And in that bar, everybody was going in, I guess, and cashing their uh, social security or welfare checks um, and getting drunk. They stayed in the bar because they couldn't come out while we were shooting, and it just got louder and louder, and they were drunker and drunker and trying to shoot a dead country uh, that isn't dead was one of the most challenging things in the world. Planes go by, trains go by, cars go by. We're usually about 20 feet from cars or activity of some sort. And the world is supposed to have died. And it was so nearly impossible that there were times I wanted to shoot myself. We also had a lot, this was very near the city dump in Ogden, so we had a lot of seagulls that were very noisy, and before every shot, our 
prop man, Barry Frannenberg, would fire off a shotgun of blanks, and the birds would fly away, and by the end of the shot, they'd be back. <laughs> I love this one. I always thought he looked a little bit like the Jolly Green Giant in that light, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> One of the things that you do as an editor when you're putting together a, a show or a movie is you put in temporary music. You take it from different scores, from different uh, soundtracks, different any little place you can find it, what you think might be right. And we tempt this eight-hour rough cut in its entirety, wall-to-wall uh, -wall almost. And uh, when it was turned over to Snuffy Walden, the composer, he, he did an amazing job. It was a real interesting choice. I think he came, didn't he come from Stephen King, Mick? Uh, yeah, Snuffy? yeah. He was somebody who I was not that familiar with, but Steve loved his music from uh, I'll Fly Away. He gave it such an earthy, wonderful feel, and he, he did a lot of different complicated pieces, too, and uh, we were just thrilled when we finally got to the end of the process and he delivered us the, the final score. And, of course, we had our rows of corn that we set up in this uh, corridor in the hospital uh, to do our trick cut out of the cornfield. And this is our first assistant director there, uh, that corpse on the floor we just passed, Tony Adler. Stay away from East Texas. Stay away or you'll all die. Nice voice. The main problem, though, is in something this size, again, is um, the continuity of the movie, to know where it's going, what comes before what you're shooting, what comes after what you're shooting, what its context is, uh, just the level you're trying to attain, uh, the, the, the volume, the intensity, because everything is just one little block in the puzzle. So uh, keeping that in mind was the most difficult thing for everybody involved. It helps to have great continuity. It helps to have great editing. Uh, but everyone has to be aware on the set. And the actors, it's particularly difficult for them. Nothing ever shoots in order, and especially when you're talking about an eight-hour miniseries. Uh, you're all over the map. So you just really have to concentrate on, on what you're going for and where everything is going and what you're building up to, what your commercial breaks are. And uh, again, it comes down to trusting the script. It was really uh, a masterful job that Steve did adapting a, an internal medium into an external one. It's interesting because filmmaking really is a culmination of all art forms. It's composition, it's performance, it's photography, it's uh, lighting, it's sound, it's music. Uh, it, it really is a, a cumulative art form uh, of all of the finest. And uh, if it's working at its best, it is truly an art form. And I, I think Steve really has mastered the translation from book to screenplay. This and the, and the Shining scripts were two of the best scripts I'd ever read. They are literature. You can read them like books. Uh, the brilliant Ben the Dog. Hi. 
I don't think Molly had ever ridden a motorcycle before, which worked because <laughs> neither had Fran. Having a little trouble getting that kickstand down there. Fran Goldsmith. We're glad to meet you. Well, we're glad to see you. Aren't we, Harold? I don't know. I mean, do we assume that they're all right? Harold is getting a little better. His hair is nice and neatly combed. A uh, couple left, a uh, couple fewer blemishes on the face there. They're starting to heal as he's becoming a man. Uh, and his, uh, his buns have shrunk just a tad. <laughs> Although you wouldn't know from the uh, outfit. Vermont. Another reason we were able to make the 100-day schedule um, work was because we constantly carried Steadicam and uh, a crane with us. We had it for the whole shoot, uh, except when we were on the stage, we didn't have the crane. But um, we were able to do setups that would be very difficult to do if you were putting it on dolly track. And, and we wanted it to constantly be moving and constantly to have it, uh, an almost dreamlike floating quality. Um, and that was something Mark Moore, our Steadicam operator, did a, a fantastic job. And it, putting the uh, the hothead on the crane allowed us to do multiple setups that we could control remotely and uh, get them and, and make our days, particularly in the exterior work like this, was pretty pretty helpful. And again, I can't tell you how good it feels to see this outside in shirt sleeves, to, to see the greenery, to see what I remember as very warm, comfortable days because they were so few. Ray Walston was an interesting character to work with. I mean, he's a terrific actor and uh, basically had his entire role memorized before we started shooting the first day. But uh, he would also be a little cranky now and then. Uh, because of damage created by uh, uh, stage lights to his eyes, he'd always wear these big glasses between takes that were all taped up with black electrical tape so no light could get in. And uh, he'd get a little testy now and then, but if you bust him on it, he'd laugh. At least he did to me. Here you go. I may have already told this story. Okay. You know, Mick, as I'm watching this, I'm remembering uh, how fortunate we were to have Gary Sinise with all the, the great cast that we had, they had somebody playing the extreme evil of the devil and the good of mother, but uh, and all the various kinds of acting styles and, and demands they had. But he really was the center. I mean, he was such a center for them all to revolve around. It was just great to have uh, to have him there. Well, his, his Stu Redman gives such a Gary Cooper solidity to the part. I mean, it really is the, the center of the universe here this whole universe that expands and contracts around him, and he really, really brings it down to earth. This is a closed-down hospital um, in Salt Lake City, of all places. Uh, and, uh, oh yes, one of the rare examples of uh, on-camera vomit on a television show. Hold it. Oh, can't. Okay. Reminds me a little of Mr. Creosote in The Meaning of Life. But, uh, I have another mint. Yes. 
love that sucking the uh, the last of the vomit on his lip off as he turns and talks to Gary. All the thoughts that you have to convey without words, you must, you got, you have to be so specific. I mean, being specific as an actor is always your goal, but when you don't have the dialogue to help you, it is just absolutely incumbent on you to be specific. Otherwise, people have no idea what, what you're going through. And, and the temptation, I imagine, would be to do more than you need to do. Yeah, yeah. You, you find yourself in Mar Mel Marcel Marceau territory pretty quickly, <laughs> I think, <laughs> if you're not careful. This was a fun location. I always like closed down places where you can shoplift stuff and nobody's <laughs> ever going to say anything. So, uh, I yeah, got some pockets you know, full of Advil. Oh, yeah, yeah. and some men in skin bracer. <laughs> so I was, you know, you never can get too much of that. No. I love the way I put it outside my wardrobe <laughs> as opposed to where you might actually need it. <laughs> And now Shawnee's introduction was interesting. We had, she was ad-libbing some interaction with that dummy uh, that was quite erotic. Uh, and there was a lot of pulse pounding going on as she was doing her, her little number with, with the female mannequin. Uh, that no longer exists in the show. Uh, it was not cut into it. And Shawnee actually has short hair and had a fall uh, tacked in. She came in and read for us and brought so much fire into this uh, character who didn't really read that way. She read as a little off kilter and the like, but Shawnee just exploded. I, I think it's a remarkable performance. She's so quirky and wonderful. She's very quirky and... Again, with a character that's as empathetic and sympathetic as Nick, this sort of undercurrent in here of, of sexuality, I think is a nice, a really nice little color that I really liked in, in this sequence. Because the danger is, is that Nick just becomes this sort of martyr saint. Yeah, and it was like really the... important for me to get across sort of the, the, the hintings of foibles, just like any other person would have. And this sort of what are they going to do in this alone here thing was one of the ways I tried to do that. Yeah, the chink in the armor, the the, the near consummation of their immediate meeting has such a nice tension to it. And then when she starts uh, saying bad things about Tom Cullen, insulting things about him, it just, he can't take it. Can't I really wish I had worked on my penmanship when I was in <laughs> grade school. I'm going to remember to tell my kids to work on that kind of stuff. What? What? I tried to play this as much in, in silhouette as possible, too. Just two facing uh, with a bright light behind them and just kind of a shadow play from a, a wide angle before we go in on the faces. I remember when she puts her hand in the pocket there, we, we had a, a lot of discussions. I remember you and I on if the network would let us That's right. do that shot. 
they really about. they were really great on this. I, I have to say. Yeah, the the pages of notes that you didn't see <laughs> <laughs> might have amused you. Yes, I'm sure. One of the network notes was uh, Molly Ringwald's character's name, Franny Goldsmith, and she's singing Amazing Grace later on in the show as she's burying her father. And uh, one of the notes was, as a Jew, I'm offended that Fran Goldsmith would be singing Amazing Grace. Hey, well, maybe it's best I didn't know about those notes. I guess you're right. <laughs> Again, the silence, the no music, the heat building, no sound effects or anything, just these two people breathing together in this wide open space of this store. It, it's so conveyed the desolation and the impact. You don't need any of that beautiful music there. The other thing that was interesting is, is sometimes actors see the same scene in two different ways, and sometimes it can hurt you and it can help you. I mean, and in this... For, for my character, it was just the human contact of holding this girl was really where he was at. And for her, it was much more of a sexually charged thing. And sure. she wanted very much to play the scene one way, and I wanted to play it really another. I remember. And um, Get out. the temptation is on the day to go, oh, well, this isn't going very well. We're not on the same page. But then you look at it, and you know, t people have different agendas in life. Right, and I think that's conveyed really well, that each of you did have a different approach to it because you each had different needs in that scene. Your characters had individual needs that were both contradicting. Look at her walk. <laughs> yeah, those big shoes, <laughs> that dress. Your name's Tom, right? Tom Cullen, M-O-O-N. That spells Tom Cullen. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't want medicine, mister. I love that Nick has heard the M-O-O-N thing now enough that he doesn't pay any attention to it. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. no impact. Yeah, drink this. Enough of the M-O-O-N stuff, pal. This was another nightmare uh, scene to shoot because just 50 feet away, we're holding traffic, and it's backed up and backed up, and they're honking and honking, and we're trying to be quiet, get them quiet, because here we are in the middle of a dead world. And... There's planes going by every five minutes in the middle of every take. This is all ad-libbed, I remember, I think. Her, her stuff, wasn't it, Mick? Most of it, yeah. Dummy freak bastard! I'm looking at this and going, God, this is a physical part. Yeah, yeah. I remember I didn't want to point the gun at her. I thought that was too much. Yeah. Just showing the gun Just is show all it, that yeah. needed to be done. And I like being angry with him there, that little bit. Again, you know, he's exasperated. Those little choices, being really pissed, like, you know, shut up, man. Let me handle this. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about Nick is that he's so noble, and yet he'll be mad at this poor guy who's trying to stop him. He will. He actually went as far as to slap this woman. Right. It's not a simple character. Crappy note. She's it was great just here. a joke, dummy. It's a joke. Ha 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 ha. Joke, stupid. I like to do three layers too, where you have a person in the foreground, a person in the middle, and a person in the background in, in several of the shots, just so it's visually deep. 
love that laugh. It's like Margaret <laughs> Hamilton in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, where are the flying monkeys? Yeah. I love the look at us. We both look at him like, what a lunatic. It's like the bad date gone wrong. <laughs> you know, we're out on a double date. Ooh, they were nuts, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> One of the only ways we were able to make this uh, show is that we carried a Steadicam with us for all 100 days of shooting and a crane for all 100 days, so we didn't have to set track. And it really was guerrilla filmmaking. And again, I mean that as a very positive thing. It challenged the ingenuity of the people making the film. We couldn't throw money at something. We had to, to use our, our creativity and just get it. There was no going over schedule, nothing of that allowed. And we just, 100 days, and it came out at 100 days despite the worst imaginable weather and uh, everything getting in the way. It's the uh, Oswald shot. <laughs> the book repository. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not a big prop actor, I have to say. You know, it's like I can barely walk and talk at the same time. So, you know, getting that bike. Get, why don't you try to get the backpack on? I, I, I can't even get on the bike. <laughs> I guess so she, we cut away from him and go. cut back with him already yeah, on the bike. Yeah, exactly. I think it's actually the stunt man maybe on that bike. No, that's you. <laughs> this is my favorite shot uh, of the Nick and Tom scenes. Just this long lens with all the desolate heat coming up between the camera and the images and these big hopeful white clouds coming up in the background in a blue, blue sky. And Snuffy's guitar is just so eloquent. Snuffy Walden's amazing composer. Just great. But look at that openness. Again, it's so hard to find those places uh, that are shootable um, where you can just have a wide open expanse and you just want to see as much of the world as possible. It is very Americana. The wardrobe is tremendous in this. Yeah. You know what? That's that shirt's hanging in my closet, and I've been wondering where the hell I got it from. Now is I it know. that dirty? It, yeah. I it actually I've cleaned it now. Oh, good. <laughs> what is it? Oh, Mister, Mister, we gotta go. We gotta hide. What if that could be her? Oh, she's back there. Oh, Lars, yes, Tom knows that, but, but what if that one's like her? Yeah, I remember this time of year, it was starting to get really hot. Yeah, it was very near the end of the Might show. Like us? Or right? certainly like the end us? of our Utah experience, because 90% of Utah was snow or rain or it would just really awful weather. The last two weeks we were there is when it started greening up and warming up and, and actually became quite beautiful. But boy, it was torture for a long time. It's weird as an actor working on a show like this where you're not in all of it. So I would come in and do sometimes one scene and get on a plane and go home and I wouldn't see you again for two weeks. Yeah. And I'd show up and I'd go, Mick, how's it going? <laughs> well, when you were gone, we destroyed Las Vegas. We killed 300 people. And it's hard it's hard to get a sense of continuity sometimes working like that but there's 
no other way around it, really. Well, even the shooting of it is, is incredibly difficult because you normally shoot out of context anyway, but when you're shooting 460 pages or eight hours, um, shooting out of continuity, again, it comes back to trusting the script. Mm -hmm. It's so complicated and so difficult, each scene has to be important unto itself and has to weave together. Peter Van Norden uh, did a great job as Ralph, too. He was an actor who I was not that familiar with. He played a, a slimy lawyer in uh, The Accused with Jodie Foster. And uh, this is a totally different kind of role for him. Andros. M-O-O-N. I guess that spells Nick. Nick Andros, how you doing? I love that he didn't know my name until just now. Yeah. Spend all this time together crossing the Look at me, I'm going, that's enough. You can stop shaking my hand now, big fella. To me, uh, there's, there's nothing more elegant than just a, a shot of a, a vast expanse moving up into the sky and watching these characters move out into that brave new world and those hopeful white clouds beyond there. It's just just the way the horizon, the, the road moves out into that horizon. Yeah, don't you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, can't you feel the fear that I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there'll be no <laughs> Take a look around, you boy. It's bound to scare your boy, so don't tell me over and over and over again, my friend, that you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. Someone else. Right, Joe? I'm so pleased to meet you. Yeah, same here, believe me. How you doing, son? <laughs> Joe! Put that away. Nice kid. Did he had his rabies shots yet? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's he's been traumatized. Haven't we all? I suppose so. I'm Lucy Swan. Yeah. The boy, I found him in a supermarket in Iowa City. He was just wandering around eating sweet stuff. Back then he was almost feral. Well, you took him with you anyway. He would have died on his own. So what do you think happened here? I mean, you think it was lightning or, uh... It started around dusk. There's a whole series of explosions on the west side of town where the tank farms are. And then later that night, there was a wind, and by morning, the rest of the city was gone. I'd say it was set. You think somebody deliberately burned Des Moines to the ground? Yes. Who'd want to burn a whole city to the ground, for God's sakes? 
I will set you high in my councils, and I will set you to burn. Thank you, Lord. This is when they are coming to get me for me to join them. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and I'm going to be, I'm having to leave my house for the last, uh, last time. But, but, I'm, but I'm trying to get this food together we're gonna, because we're going to eat first. Mm-hmm. And you've spent all 106 years in this house. Yes, 106 years in this house, and uh, and um, yes, and I'm. I think that's the first time. I, I, I know this is my first meeting with with this character. I think right with yeah, Rob. Yes, yeah. and I love this scene because uh, it it said something to me. He he says. Um, it doesn't matter because he believes yeah, in you. But he, <laughs> when he says to me that he doesn't believe in God, and that thing, the, I love the line, you know, when she's when Mother Abigail says, it, she says, but that don't matter. That don't matter. <laughs> he believes in you. <laughs> and I thought about that. That that really, that line has stuck with me in a, in a very personal way. So somebody says, uh, it doesn't matter if you're an atheist, an agnostic. It doesn't matter. Uh, you may not believe in divine power, but the divine power believes in you. And she laughs. Yeah. I love that. She's so delighted <laughs> by it. <laughs> yes. The, the nervous, the, we puny human beings decide that we don't believe in God. <laughs> Gina, that's not polite. Mayhap so, sweetheart. Mayhap so. Now this, the light in this scene is so beautifully late afternoon. Our, our cinematographer, Eddie Pei, did a, a wonderful job. And he was nominated for an Emmy as well without anyone realizing we had shot this in 16 millimeter. And I'm sure people didn't realize again that this is inside of a soundstage either. Yeah, yeah. With that damn phony corn. <laughs> I kept waiting for Kevin Costner to come flying out of that corn in a White Sox uniform. If they build it, it will. Yes. With the tot. How did you know to come to me in the first place? We dreamed of you, mother. Actors are always, you know, you're, you're training in your experiences to look in their eyes, obviously, and then. And this, if you notice, a lot of times I'm looking at their mouths for lip reading. I like here the two sides of the spiritual question, too. The woman who has no doubt whatsoever about the God who is communicating with her, and the character of Nick, who is one of the most noble characters, who is not a believer. And I think it's an important element to this story. Um, I think it's one of the reasons it connects with people in such a good way. For me, I had to accept 
the story as told and believe it and portray it in the most believable way. I'm, I'm not a religious person. I don't have a religious background, but I had to adopt a what-if attitude because the religion and the acceptance of the spiritual qualities are what the story revolves about. And King does have those feelings. And so it, it was really interesting. It, it's one of the great challenges of, of being a filmmaker when you're not writing the script yourself, of adopting someone else's philosophy for storytelling purposes. Yeah, and, and, and I love so much the, this fight she has with she's always fighting with God, you know, and arguing, <laughs> arguing with him, yeah, arguing yeah. with him, and and this, and but absolutely captive. You know, I mean, it was a stunning kind of role to do. I mean, particularly since it it was so close in many respects to things I really do believe. You understand? <laughs> and, and I love the, this childness, the, the childlike quality about this 106-year-old woman who's governed with from voices and, and powers and spirits from beyond. The, I, I found that fascinating, you know. And when she's getting ready to go, this, this scene where she's talking with, with um, the, the character that Rob Lowe does here. Nick, yeah. Nick, yes, yes. And who, who, who can't, he can't speak. Now, this scene makes me almost want to cry just to look at it. And when, when, and when she's talking about her father, um, you know, owning all the land, because that's really such a part of black history. People don't really know it. I don't know in how many, I know in the South it was true. And it was later, it was true later too when they started moving west, uh, the, the homesteaders. There were a lot of women there, black women too, who uh, they owned land because the men weren't there. And this was a whole, this this was rooted in in a in a truth and a reality, you know, and that that, that she had to that she had to leave this place, and was was heartbreaking for me that she had to leave this place. And you know, you know, I um I found that such a hard scene to do. That was your first scene too. I didn't expect to do it so fast. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't expect that to be the first scene I did. And I was unhappy with it. Like I was unhappy with myself in the scene. Maybe because I hadn't settled into the into the character. I hadn't settled into the in, in, into the into the job itself with the people and the characters and it was a I found it a very one of the most difficult days I've had as an actor to get to this moment just before she's getting ready to leave her house when she's talking to Nick and and to this stranger when she has to leave this place where she's been all her life and all that is a part of history, really a part of history, and part of people's history that I know too, right here in, like in California, or where Disney is. That oh, you belong to black people, I understand. Uh, out in um, oh, many, many, many regions in this country, and so I, I thought about that, and, and thought about the realities of getting on, on a wagon and leaving someplace where you've been all your life for the last time, you know. You fix the meal, you leave the food, and you go. <laughs> and, that, and knowing that she's following this God, who's this hard God, because she, 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 she was 
disappointed that God made her do this thing. It's, if I'm, if, if that's what my recollection of the script is, that she was, she was really, if she had had her way, she'd have given God a piece of her mind. Yeah, well, she and she did. gets, she gets she mad at him. She gets yeah. mad, and she goes, and that, and that moment when she's saying goodbye to the house. Yeah. With her things like that. See, when I think about things like that, that really. That really touches me very oh, much. Such an emotional. Oh yes, part. it was a, um, and and you know, it's not too unlike the way things might might go. <laughs> you know, as even as I sit here now, I feel I feel Mother Abigail kind of creeping into me as I as I talk about her. Oh, mm -hmm. good. When I wrote The Stand, I made a conscious effort to try and balance characters on the good side, which is to say the Boulder side, and the Las Vegas side, where the evil people congregate. And there was no, no uh, real intention on my part to suggest that uh, Las Vegas is the center of evil in the uh, United States. Everybody knows that's really Secaucus, New Jersey. Ha, just kidding there, Secaucus. But uh, it seemed to me that Vegas, with its brightness, with all its uh, neon, would be the perfect place for the evil uh, forces to congregate. I love that. And uh, so if you've got Mother Abigail balanced off against Randall Flagg, I thought to myself, well, here's the uh, the uh, black king and the white queen, if you will. And I thought to myself, well, every king or every queen should have a resident sorcerer. And if the sorcerer figure of the uh, good people is symbolized, or if that role is fulfilled by Tom Cullen, then the sorcerer role of the bad people is uh, fulfilled by the trash can man who shows up coming out of the desert, uh, uh, burned from his penchant for arson uh, in Indiana, and he's finally arrived in Las Vegas where he has promised to give his life uh, for the dark man. And again, when I wrote the character, I had no sense, really, of how things would turn out or how pivotal he would be. Uh, just as Tom Cullen is on the on the other side, but uh, you know, I loved the character, and I loved his obsession. Uh, my mother used to tell me a story um, when she was uh, alive about a, a boy named Freddie who lived in Scarborough, where she grew up, and. Uh, Freddie used to light fires in people's mailboxes. He would wait until the mailman went by in his little uh, cart, and then he would run up to the mailbox and look inside, and if there was letters and things inside, he would light them on fire and then run down to the next mailbox. And he became the basis for the trash can man who loves to light fires. He's just uh, your basic firebug uh, who shows up in Las Vegas, and if if there's one thing that any uh, self-respecting uh, demon who would like to become the emperor of America needs, 
it's a firebug, particularly one who can sniff out uh, weapons, and certainly the trash can man's able to do that. Bringing us across the prairie into this place where the mountains begin. Please take care of us in the days and weeks to come and help us to love one another and do your will, however hard it may sometimes seem to us. Dear Lord, help us to stand. 